Hello and welcome to episode 98 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. This is your co-host Russ over here and over there is... Yeah, this is your co-host Mike over here with, with the classical listings for this week. The classical side over there. I have to there. say 98 was a good year. Mm. Yeah, it was a good year. And 2023 is shaping up to be a good year. Last week... Already, yeah. Yeah, last week we got some nice response to the episode by uh, La Serenissima. Yeah, La Serenissima wrote to us. Actually, they're, they're a rather large ensemble, and I think a lot of them got involved. <laughs> we got a lot like of it. messages from, from them, yeah. All of them on Facebook, by the way. So everybody, if you go to our Facebook site, you can read them all. Uh, they did not write to our uh, Gmail, which is kind of interesting. Or mm. did they? <laughs> no, I think I they were write back to them just on Gmail. Facebook. Though. It was all yeah. Facebook. Yeah. yeah, I got to put more posts up there. That really uh, paid off. It turned out that I put up uh, the uh, Tabia Debus um recorder one of them i put up wasn't with la serenissima she was with someone else <laughs> yeah. and i mis i mislabeled them but i did fix it so i don't know but i left it up i thought it was a good performance and we also uh got uh, some nice uh, feedback from the jazz piano debut a trio yeah. recording last week uh Ilya vandermeulen trio dutch piano yeah. player with his uh, release time ticking if you haven't heard that check that out it's a really great recording anyway he was really happy with what I we had to too, say about yeah. the album and so i got in touch yeah. finding out how we could get a copy of it and it's only yeah. going to be released on vinyl yes yeah, so you vinyl yeah. heads will be happy about, be happy about that, that but, but i'm uh, not because i'm a cd guy <laughs> yeah mike and i are uh digital heads mike's yeah. really into cds i like cds but uh, i also do streaming and everything's on my music server and i got out of the vinyl yeah. game i still have my some gear back in the u.s and some records but uh yeah, it's not the way forward for you know me, listen so. to vinyl but i'm not going to collect it i'm just no, not it's, not i'm just not it takes up a lot of room i'm just i'm, I'm digital all the way anyway so absolutely i like yeah. the clean sound of digital <laughs> and i've got another great debut recording uh, tonight uh, coming up in the jazz uh, section from another country and so i can't wait to uh, talk about that oh uh, let's see what else well we did have a death this week a big music name not in classical or jazz but we should mention it and i'm sure Although, everyone knows about yeah. it yeah that would be uh jeff beck the guitarist right yeah. the rock guitarist yeah rock guitarist yeah. huge figure in uh rock music yeah not only that but he you did mention he did record uh goodbye pork pie hat yeah, he did. right yeah Mig's tunes. He so. also recorded, this is interesting, I don't know if he recorded it, but he did perform Nessun Dorma by uh, Puccini. <laughs> so, mm. I guess he could count him as both classical and jazz. I guess, to a certain extent. He was very wide-ranging in his musical tastes, and yeah. I'm happy to hear that. He would have been a great guest on the show, actually. We could have uh, talked good, music yeah. with him. Oh, well, we missed our chance. Anyway, anyway rest now. in peace, the great Jeff Beck. So here at Adult Music, every week we bring you six recent recordings, usually in classical and jazz categories. And we discuss them and give you all the information. And just to remind everyone, you're going to get all that information in the episode description with links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we're going to talk about. Also, at the top of the description, you can get a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on Deezer, our favorite CD quality streaming platform from France. And you can also listen to the podcast there if you want to get all the music and the podcast in the same place. And if you don't see the full description or list on whatever app you're listening to us on, uh, you can always come over to our host site. That's podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow, all the links and descriptions there. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, 
Please follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. Tell a friend. Helps us get new listeners. And if you write a ranking or write a review of the podcast wherever you listen to us, that helps us get listed in the recommendations in the music categories. And then we get more listeners that way. And that makes us happy too. You can also come over and follow us on Facebook, uh, see some interaction with the artists that we talk about during the week, get some extra info and new releases throughout the week. You can uh, leave a message or comment there. And if you want to uh, get in touch directly by email, we'd love to hear from you too with any comments or questions. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We're also sharing audiences with a few other music-related podcasts we'd like you to check out. We've got Tom Gowker's podcast, Something Came From Baltimore. It's a jazz, blues, and R&B interview podcast. And we've got famous interviews and neon jazz from Joe Domino, who interviews artists, musicians, and writers. And we've got Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard, Johnny Valenzuela and Tony Habra take a look at several versions of the same jazz standard each week, and they play a little bit from each one and discuss the history and the different versions. So if you need some more podcasts during the week, please check those out. You'll find the links at the end of the description. And if you stick around to the end of the episode, you'll hear the little promos from each podcast as well. This week, we had a lot of uh, downloads by single people who... This always kind of intrigues me. Like, single people will re- will download, um, you know, 20 podcasts or something right. like that. And they're all two hours long. I'm really amazed that people are going to just go through them all and listen to them like that. Yeah, I noticed yeah. that this week. We would have um, mm-hmm. the first uh, downloads of the day. We would have a, a large number, but then a few number of uh, individual listeners. We can get that kind of statistics from uh, the feedback from Podbean. So, I was happy. That means that somebody knew who's uh, downloading a lot. And uh, yeah, that's cool. So any new listeners, welcome. One of the nice things about Podbean too, is you can kind of see the, uh, they, they'll show you maps of your sort of distribution and like say, you know, if we can see which states people are listening to us in, in the United States, right, which is really right. cool. And in some other countries too, but not Japan. They don't give you a map of Japan no and show you where yeah. people are listening to. Because Japan is our second um, largest audience. The right. United States is by far the largest, which is which is fantastic. We yeah. we love our American audience, of course. Yeah, they're our our home, yeah, our, yeah. our paisan, I guess, if you want to say <laughs> it that way. But um, you, you know, the Japan they don't give you a Japan map, which is too bad. So I'd like to see where those people are. Are They all like in Kansai, are they in uh, Tokyo, or yeah, it would be nice to know. I remember when I was writing for the um, the Kansai timeout, I, I did the classical music coming events, and we mm. had a lot of a lot of the readers that would write back were from the uh, the consulate in uh, Osaka. They would oh, okay. sort of uh, read the column. And I guess I guess they were a big they were classical music heads there, at least one of oh. them. And I'm just kind of wondering if it's them who's listening to us. If you are, send us a send us a line. We'd like to know uh, that yeah. you're listening. Okay, anybody any listeners in Japan? We'd like to know where you're located. Nice. And I guess because yeah. of uh, Yeli van der Meel and uh, effect, we had uh, a whole lot of Netherlands downloads <laughs> for the first time this week. That's so cool. I hope some of you stay on yeah. and uh, become yeah. regular listeners. That would be cool as well. All right. So are we ready to go off into we're the, uh, this is the third, already the third episode of the year, yeah. I guess. I think we're going way back in time to start this one out too, aren't we? Yeah, we are going back to the Renaissance era. So mm. more than 400 years ago. Now, I chose this one because Russ, one of Russ's um, albums of the year last year was uh, a record about um, Florence, the Florentine Renaissance. Right. 
So I happen to have this one too, and um, this is this is um, I like this one a lot better than the one actually Russ picked oh. actually, but I'll get mm. into that okay. when we do it. I'll tell you why in a moment. But um, well, although I like that one too a lot. Okay, this one is called the Splendor of Florence with a Burgundian resonance. Burgundy meaning I guess um, France and Flanders. I guess those mm. people would be Flemish. All these all these tunes are in French. Um, this is by Gothic Voices, and it's on the Lynn label, which is part of the Out There Music Group. Now, first of all, Florence. I spent a lot of time in Florence. I'm always very interested in you know what was going on there, especially musically. Um, Florence, as people may know, any of you music historians out there, is the birthplace of opera. And uh, the building where opera was actually created in <laughs> is still there. You can wow. actually... You know, go go buy it. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, but um, there was all sorts of you know church music and um, just you know Renaissance type music in there in the in the Renaissance. Florence being the birthplace of the Renaissance, or thought of it. Gothic voices. I remember they were formed in 1980, and they're still going here in 2023. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, if you think about that, this is a Renaissance era medieval music ensemble and in 1980 that would have meant they were at the vanguard of this sort of research because research into pre-baroque music really started taking off in the 1980s it was already happening in the 1970s but uh, it really became like a, a thing mm. unto itself really starting in the 1980s now gothic voices those of you who may be fans of a hildegard of bingen they released what i think is the best ever still a record of um, Hildegard of Bingen's music called The Feather on the Breath of God. And uh, Emma Kirkby was on that. And uh, it was released in uh, 1985. And it was on Hyperion Records. I, I have a copy of it, of course. And I still mm. listen to it from time to time. It's really beautiful. It's one of those essential classical recordings that everybody should have. So A Feather on the mm. Breath of God on Hyperion Records by Gothic Voices. Check that out. It's really old. They've moved on now. Um, they've released amazing albums of Renaissance and medieval music all the way through these the years. And they even had a really cool um, Christmas album in 2019 of medieval music that I really enjoyed as well. So this one, the theme is Florence. And Florence is said to have been the birthplace of the Renaissance. And it drew in the beginning many Franco-Flemish composers, um, which is why there's so much French music on this album. You know, Italian, now, Italian composers would really take over in the Baroque. They... they created the Baroque, really. But um, in this era, the Renaissance church music, that would have been uh, like people like Josquin, like Franco-Flemish mm -hmm. Flemish composers. And in this case, uh, the, the main uh, mover on this album is going to be Guillaume Dufay. He's gonna, he's, his music features quite a bit. Their music was very popular amongst the wealthy and cultured, which would have been pretty much all of Florence at the time. Anyway, let's get into this album. The music is really a celebration of Florence itself, and it's music that was found in texts from the time. Mm. A lot of it has to do with church music, and it centers around the uh, the great uh, Santa Maria del Fiore um, Duomo in Florence, the the very famous with the very famous Brunelleschi Dome, still a, a model for these to this day, one of the, the most beautiful buildings ever created. And you can go to Florence and see it today. It's a really wonderful thing. Mm. Anyway, so this music has been uh, heard around Florence at um, in some of the uh, the cultured halls and in the church as well. We get everything here. We start out with um, an anonymous chant called Terribilis est locus iste. This is uh, very brief. It's only 48 seconds. It's a single male-voiced chant. It's sung by tenor Stephen Harold. Uh, Gothic voices, by the way, are four vocalists, and I'll name them as they come up. 
So Stephen Harold Tenor is the first person we hear. It introduces the program. Terribilis es locus iste means awesome. Is this place? It doesn't mean. It means terrible in the sense of awesome, not as a, right. not really bad. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> this guy, it's an it's an older meaning of the word terribilis. See, they still use that in French, like uh, terrible, mm. could mean terrible or it could mean like just something awesome or overwhelming. Referring to Florence, yeah, we've lost that meaning in English. It, terrible just means really bad now. <laughs> <laughs> Next, we get the man of the hour, Guillaume Dufay, uh, Miranda's Pari Hayek Urbs. Uh, this is written in an older style, so we're kind of going back way into the past. The tenors are uh, singing a cantus firmus, and it moves more slowly than the upper parts. It's also a little hard to hear because it's in the middle, but it's kind of guiding the rest of the voices. Whenever you, you hear a cantus firmus, it's really the uh, the voice that all the other voices are kind of orbiting around, let's say, or they're, you know, it's kind of controlling them, let's say. This polyphonic work is accompanied by a light harp of the era played by Andrew Lawrence King, and he features very heavily on this album. He's the only instrumentalist on the album. Yeah. Everyone else is a vocalist. Yeah, so he does, he gets a lot of uh, time. And I really like his playing a lot. I'm always happy to see him on albums, and uh, this is no different. Um, the vocals in this piece, and really throughout this whole album, are rather subdued sounding in a really appealing way. They're not really singing out. They're kind of like just singing, like they're in a chamber, singing to a small audience that's really close by. So they don't sound really bright, but they focus on the words and there's a more tempered tone to them. I really like the sound and that really drew me to this album. That's why I like this album so much more than the, the Florentine mm. Renaissance one from last year. Although I like that one too. I don't want to you know, <laughs> say anything <laughs> negative about that one. The, the voices aren't very plangent. Plangent means like kind of reverberant. They're not like kind of reverberating in the no. hall. To me, that adds to the appeal. It sounds more intimate. The harp also lacks that kind of plangency too. And the overall sound is something antiquated and appealing. Also, the, on this track, we hear um, the guest mezzo-soprano Elizabeth Paul, along with the ensemble. This is, I think, the only track she's on, so I want to mention her, you know, while we're hearing her. Okay, third track, Ferminus Caron, Rose Plaisant Odorant. The opening is all taken by a harp with uh, droning and boinging bass notes. Boing, boing, boing. It's kind of a <laughs> characteristic sound of the era, I suppose. It's very pretty and, again, uh, more atmospheric uh, with a quick decay on the harp. It doesn't really have much of a sustain. The vocals are by tenor Julian Podger, and uh, it's a lovely track. Track four, Johannes Ockegame, Dung Ultra Amer. He wrote a whole, or, or Josquin wrote a whole mass on this song. But this is actually the, uh, the song with its um, original lyrics. Catherine King, Stephen Harold, and Julian Podger are the vocal soloists. So it's every, that's uh, soprano and two tenors. Uh, this has no accompaniment. The voices blend beautifully. Yet in the counterpoint, they're all discernible. With King as the soprano standing out, the two men sing a lot of harmony in this, so they're really supporting her in a lot of ways. Um, beautiful performance, and I like the stately pacing of the rhythm too. There's some gorgeous harmonies in this texture as well. Track five, Johannes Ocke game again, Ama Redemptoris Mater. This is a later motet, so all voices have equal importance in their thematic imitative function and in their expressive content. We finally hear the bass baritone here, Simon Whiteley, on this track, uh, finishing up the four-voice Gothic Voices Ensemble. Uh, this piece is sung out a bit more than those we've previously heard. Track six, Loisette Compère, or they probably pronounce that differently. Loisette Compère, maybe. Renaissance French pronunciation is different than modern. Dictes moi tout vos pensées. 
tell me all your thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Soprano, tenor, and bass. Again, the approach makes the lines very clear, and the men are often singing in a kind of parallel harmony as the uh, soprano is the most clearly heard. Track seven, Antoine Bousnois, Monsoul, et Celle Souvenir. Andrew Lawrence King is back on the harp in this one with soprano tenor bass in the harmony. The harp gets a long solo in between the first and second verses, complete with the boinging bass notes. The middle verse is sung solo by Catherine King with her enjoyable, very even tone and really very intimate in her vibratiless way of performing this music. The third um, verse is back to three-part harmony. Track eight, Johannes Ankegame, who is another major player on this album. Ultra Venus Estes Sans Fali, sung solo by Catherine King with Andrew Lawrence King accompanying on the harp. The rise and fall of the vocal line by itself is very appealing with this modal harmony. Catherine King brings a lovely, light, vibratiless tone to the piece, letting the room reverb create the atmosphere. I really enjoyed that. It's a nice track, and Andrew Lawrence King's playing is really beautiful on this as well. Track 9, Guillaume Dufay, Lamentatio Sancte Matris Ecclesiae Constantinopolitane. Ooh. Oh, and there's more. Yeah. Autre Pitul <laughs> de Tout Espoir and Omnis Amici Eus. So it's really two uh, songs mm. kind of sung together. This is written again in the older style with the tenor Cantus Firmus, and that moves more slowly again. Uh, a very slow, stately approach to the vocals is taken here. Uh, they sing in harmony for the beginning, then in around 40 seconds burst into polyphonic harmony. There's no harp accompaniment here. We're hearing the simple four-voice Gothic voices ensemble. The tenor voice singing the Contus Firmus is singing an entirely different text than the other three vocals, by the way. So uh, having a text handy would be helpful here if you want to follow what's being sung. Track 10 is an anonymous composition, Compupivit Rex. Unaccompanied full ensemble singing in monophony with lots of melisma all the way through. So monophony means they're all singing the same note, more or less, maybe in octaves. But um, so lots of melisma. This is kind of the sort of chant type of thing you'd hear in church at the time. Track 11, Guillaume Dufay, Du tout mestois abandonne. This is a solo harp work for Andrew Lawrence King. It's gentle and a welcome brief respite from the texts. The work uh, is quiet and still and is uh, played in short phrases and is very brief at a minute and 30 seconds. Track 12, Hain van Giesegem, De Tu Bien Plein. This has a soprano, tenor, and bass with harp accompaniment. The vocals begin in the middle range, more or less sticking to a harmonized monophonic texture, so all singing the same note. In the second verse, the soprano has the lead while the lower two voices provide accompanying harmony. That would be more like homophonic, but mm. um, not too common at the time. The soprano sings the third verse solo, and then the accompanying voices return for verse four. A lot of variety here to keep the ear interested. I really enjoyed that. The soprano is very much in the lead in this piece. Track 13, Guillaume Dufay de Ma Alt et Bonne Aventure. Here the tenor Stephen Harold has the solo with Andrew Lawrence King accompanying on the harp. This is the first time we've heard uh, this combination on the album. King provides a heavier accompaniment than previously for um, Harold. I should say Lawrence King. His last name is Lawrence King, the harpist. Harold's voice is pleasant, but not quite thrown into as high relief as Catherine King's because she really floats above the harp. She's really in a higher range. He blends into the harp sound, does um, Harold, uh, more often. Not an unappealing quality, but I rather prefer the purity of Catherine King's solo with the harp. 
And in this uh, song, the singer thanks love for what it has given him. Shouldn't we all do that? Mm. Yes, we should. Okay. Track 14, Alexander Agricola. He's an Italian, I think. Jean de Désir. Um, the three male voices with harp accompaniment are heard. They sound pretty close in the harmony, stacked on one another. The vocal lines are fairly monophonic, though with staggered note values at times. Uh, the title um, is I Burn With Desire. And that pretty much sums up the text. <laughs> I, think you, I don't need to tell you what it says in order for you to imagine. Just get, get yourself the, the text here. You'll enjoy this. Track 15, an anonymous composition. Terribilis est locus iste. This is, again, uh, awesome is this place. Um, mm. Respond and verse. Now, a lot of times, awesome is this place is really, um, it's a, something that's uh, said about heaven or some kind of place where God is present. Mm. Um, it was also used in the uh, Santa Maria del Fiore, the, uh, the magnificent cathedral of right. Florence. So, um, and which is a pretty awesome place uh, itself. One of the largest cathedrals in the world. I think it might be like third or fifth or something mm. like that. And it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty spare inside. Uh, St. Peter's in Rome being the, the largest. Mm. Anyway, this piece has four voices and no harp. Um, this proceeds like a plain chant with monophonic singing and melisma on the vowels. Uh, the middle verse is sung by one of the tenors. I don't know which one. There are two tenors. Track 16, Johannes Tinctoris, Virgo de Trono Digna. This is a later motet where all the voices have equal importance in their thematic imitative function and in their expressive content, i.e. there's no cantus firmus here. There are three voices with no harp. Uh, this piece is begun without a pause after the previous track and is polyphonic with the tones melting away from each other in a really beautiful way. This is a really beautiful polyphonic performance. A little unique too. I really mm. enjoyed this one. Uh, track 16, so give that yeah. a listen. Oh, by the way, I want to just mention the Cantus Firmus, this whole idea, you wonder why do they have one voice in the middle controlling everything else? What has to do with religion? The Cantus Firmus would often be singing a biblical text or a Gregorian chant line and the other voices would decorate that. Eventually, we got away from that, but um, everything really starts with um, its religious purpose in Western music, and then eventually gets away from it. Anyway, so that's the older older um, pieces will always have a cantus firmus in them. Antoine Bousmois is the composer on track 17, Terribile Fortuna, Ma Vostre Coeur, Mise en Oubli. This is a solo for the harp. It's light-toned with the bass boinging as the gentle Luke-like melody is played in the higher range. Lovely piece. I really like these Renaissance harp pieces. I could see yeah. being in a room, you know, being fanned, having some <laughs> harpist playing for me. I would really enjoy that, I think. I could have lived in this, this time, I think. <laughs> as long as I wasn't a peasant. <laughs> anyway, there's, there's always that. Everybody says, oh, yeah. it would be great to be at your home. Yeah, if you were rich, it would be great to live any any time if you were rich. <laughs> but uh, it would be awful if you were poor, really, at any time in, the world, yeah. in world history. Anyway, track 18, Anonymous, Gloria Patri, Terribilis Est, Doxology and Respond. The full ensemble without accompaniment is heard here. One of the tenors uh, sings the plain chant of the first verse solo, and then the second verse is taken plain chant style by the whole vocal ensemble. And then finally, track 19, we get to the uh, track of the uh, that we've all been really waiting for, that the whole album's been leading up to, Guillaume Dufay's uh, Nuper Rosarum Flores. This piece was composed for the consecration of Florence's Duomo in 1436. 
Ooh. It has isorhythmic tenor parts. Now, that's very old. Isorhythmic came before the whole idea of cantus firmus and things like this. Isorhythm was a, it would be, you'd set this rhythm of, say, 16 like intervals or beats or even more, uh, more than the, a person could hear. And that would like set the structure for the entire piece. That isorhythm had to keep repeating uh, mm. throughout the entire piece. If you want to hear something amazing, you should listen to Guillaume de Machaut's Messe de Nostradam. That's an isorhythmic mass. All of it is isorhythmic. That's not the case here. The tenor part only is isorhythmic. And so that's going to be a structuring uh, line for this work. Mm. Just keep that in mind. You're not really going to hear it. But if you know it's there intellectually, you can kind of enjoy it a little more. This piece is generally in an older style. The baritone Stephen Charlesworth is added to the ensemble here, and Andrew Lawrence King is on the harp. The tenor and one of the baritone voices have a different text to sing than the rest of the ensemble. They're singing the words Terribile est locus iste, or Awesome is this place. This is a continuing refrain throughout the album. The text remembers a gift to the cathedral from the Pope, and uh, the muted chiming of the harp and the focus of the higher-end voices uh, who sing without vibrato, of course, make for a chaste kind of sound. And we're at the end. I thought this was a lovely album from start to finish. I really enjoyed the restraint of the vocals throughout, which drew my ear more into the interweaving of the melodic lines and gave them a bit of room to stand out. Now, I've heard other Gothic Voices albums uh, throughout the years, even more recent ones. This sounds different than all of those. I think Gothic Voices really does take a different approach on every album, depending on uh, what they're singing. And they're all really remarkable, and I thought this one stood out as well. Uh, the album comes across as gentle overall. It makes one long for the days of Renaissance Florence. It certainly made me long for those days, having spent quite a bit of time there as I have in my, in my life. The program is uh, commendably varied in its vocal orchestrations to keep the ear interested, with different vocal textures presented from track to track, the sound of cultivated civilization is well captured here. Oh, how I miss it. <laughs> because we don't have it anymore. <laughs> Even here in Japan, they talk about the days when, like, for example, in the, the Gion area of Kyoto, there would be like, when you would talk to like a geisha or a maiko, there was a way to talk to them. And people who frequented those places knew how to do that. It was just this really high, high level kind of... Um, cultivated conversation that nobody really does anymore. I, yeah. I don't even think the, the geisha know it anymore either. But again, I think um, Europe went through this period as well, as did Japan and probably a lot of other Asian countries as well. So different textures are presented from track to track. This is an album I really want to recommend to fans of polyphonic singing, and it's a bit out of the ordinary, and that's why I want to recommend it. It certainly drew my ear in. Not all of it is polyphonic, by the way. A lot of it is... Um, mm. We really have all three styles, polyphonic, monophonic, the singing of the same note by everybody, as in Gregorian chant, and homophonic, which is what a song is. You have um, a main melody, and then everything else is subordinate to that. This really might be the best album of Florentine music I've ever heard. I love the approach the Gothic voices took, and I love the sound of the album in general. So I would say highly recommended. Yeah, I'm happy you picked this one. I enjoyed this a lot because I like Renaissance vocal music. I find it relaxing, but also interesting and compelling for the little quirkiness that comes mm. out in uh, especially the harmonies as you said you've got a variety of approaches 
in the composition mm. using the voices here. So that's interesting. You'll have a it's lot a good of good programming. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of a little bit of polyphonic, then just sort of um, some with like parallel movements. And then there's a few numbers like that track 16 you mentioned, and uh, also track 12 that actually have a kind of built around cadences, but they're pre Baroque right. kind of cadences. So they don't always go and resolve the way your ear expects right. them to in always modern interesting, days. Yeah. And there's little quirky sort of modulations sometimes and weird shifts in and out of uh, major to minor. Not a lot of that, but just a little bit to keep I, I think a lot of it's modal. Up. There's a lot of modes in this, right. on, on this album. Yeah. Uh, so you have those interesting surprises that you will be sort of waken up by from your hmm. general relaxed sort of state from just the beauty of the voices. And as you mentioned, this is not a, a reverby kind of a cathedral recording. It's rather up close, soft, and intimate. And you can really enjoy the blend of the voices. And yeah, it's just really good listening, uh, especially for me in the morning time. I like to listen to something like this. And I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I don't know. I'd have to go yeah. back and listen to that one from last year again. But as you say, this may actually be better just for the richness of the material that it has. So if you like this kind of period of music, I think you're going to enjoy this one. Yeah, nothing wrong with the one that we uh, recommended last no, no. year, that's for sure. All right, now the for the our next album, the, the I spent most of the week <laughs> working on what I yeah. was going to say about this because this was really kind of hard to, to sort of break down. This is uh, the Icelandic pianist Vikingur Olafsson's new album, From Afar, and it's on the Deutsche Grammophon label. All right, now, it's two albums. It's two CDs. Now, if you're going to listen to it um, in streaming, it separates the program into two CDs, right. actually, to, or it should anyway, so you know what you're listening to. You hear the same program twice. Uh, CD one is the grand piano, so it's pretty much what we'd hear in a concert hall. And CD two is on an upright piano. So something you'd have in your home. It's a little more intimate and with a lot less sustain and bright, less brightness as well. And a lot of other sounds too. <laughs> and a lot of other sounds yeah. too. Yeah, there were some odd sounds that he did on this. Ah, there's so much to say about this album. Jeez. <laughs> I don't know where to go. Anyway, let me... Uh, I need to explain this program so that we know what we're listening to. This is a very unusual piano program. It's uh, unique. Mm -hmm. um, it's mostly um, short pieces. I think the longest work is six minutes long, but a lot of them are a minute or less. And um, it goes by pretty quickly at 51 minutes. And then you hear the other program, which is another 51 minutes, which is anyway the same uh, except on a different instrument. So all of a sudden writes a, a long program note for this, and he starts it by quoting a character from uh, Muriel Sparks' novel, A Far Cry from Kensington. And the character is uh, Nancy Hawkins, and she's giving advice to aspiring novelists. She says, you are writing a letter to a friend. That's the way the quality of novel should have. You're really writing to one person. And this is true, having written a novel too. Mm. You don't want to please the crowd. You want to write to the, the one person reading your book. Because basically, even if a million people are reading your book, each of them is one person. See, you know, mm. they're not do, doing it as an audience. So a, a novel um, audience is pretty uh, unique that way. Well, that's not really true of a piano um, program, but uh, that's what um, Olafson <laughs> wanted on this album. Privacy and focus come from trying to delight and interest only one person. And that's the way that, that effect is achieved, the, the intimacy. You're just thinking of that one person mm. and focusing on them. It allows for a sense of safety, 
authenticity and playfulness. Playfulness. And really, that's what attracts us to art, really. Safety, well, we feel safe when we're in the artistic world. The art is authentic and it's playful. Usually that's what really makes us mm. enjoy it the most. On this album, Olafsson says he's writing a letter to a to George Kurtag, a composer he has admired for decades, who's now a friend. Now, Kurtag, Hungarian composer, is still alive. He, he will celebrate his 97th birthday. Oh, on February 19th. So he's 96 right now, but he's about to turn 97. That's amazing. Mm. And he's still active as far as I know. This is in response to the time he met Kurtag for about two hours in the Budapest Music Center. But instead of writing a thank you in a letter, he put together this musical program, which I think is a really nice idea. Wow. Why not? Just yeah. put a musical program together for your friend. He wanted to respond because he realized that in the middle of the schedule of practicing, rehearsals, concerts, airport transfers, emails online online meetings, all the stuff that makes up the life of a modern classical musician. He felt like that evening in Budapest had reacquainted him with some musical essence. Yeah, I get this. You know, because you get caught up, you, you get in your career, even if you're an artist, you get caught up in the, the day-to-dayness of things. But then there are these little moments, mm. you know, that kind of remind you of why you're doing this in the first place. And I think that's what happens here. He says, uh, the meeting with Kurtai brought him joy. The program, therefore, is very personal to Olafsson, consisting of music from his childhood. So there's a lot of Bach, Mozart, Schumann, Bartok. There are Icelandic and Hungarian folk songs, and they all fall amongst the trail of shiny little stones in a moonlit forest, which are the works of Kurtag himself. Now, Kurtag, I, th- I think I remember this. Um, the program weaves a short works from Kurtag's ongoing project, Yatakak, which um, are these very brief one-minute works and it means games, Yatakak. Mm. And um, that's basically what they are. They're just kind of these little amusing um, reflections on other music, really. I, I remember one of them. It's not on this album, but there's one called um, the, the Crazy Girl with the Flaxen Hair, which is kind of <laughs> a takeoff on uh, yeah. Debussy's, of course, Girl with the Flaxen Hair, La Fille de Cheval de Lain. Yeah. Every, <laughs> yeah. But in um, Kurtag's piece, you hear the... It just keeps repeating and repeating over and over again because she's crazy. It's things like that. It's really funny. It's really charming things. I'm a little bit sad that was not on this one because I really like that. But there are loads of them now because he's been writing these his whole life. The project Yatakak never, it'll end with his death, basically. But there are probably hundreds of them by now. Anyway, on this album, Olafsson had a Steinway grand piano that his mother taught students on. And then uh, later he had an upright piano in his bedroom. Uh, it was not entirely in tune. <laughs> Do I remember the pianos of my youth? I don't think any of them were ever in tune. <laughs> my mother sounded like a saloon piano. <laughs> yeah, mine had like notes that wouldn't sound and oh boy, mm-hmm. all kinds of things, you know. Anyway, on this album, the same program is recorded twice. A grand piano on CD1, an upright piano with a layer of felt covering the strings on CD2. And it kind of acts as a permanent soft pedal. Olesa remarks that uh, George Kurtag and his late wife Marta recorded many of the forehand Bach transcriptions and pieces from Yatakok uh, on a felt softened upright piano with marvelous results. Um, there are recordings of these that you can hear. Um, for Olafsson, nothing will ever replace the large resplendent canvas and unlimited colors of the grand piano. But on the upright, there's a confidentiality, a whispering intimacy to the sound that he loves to experiment with. 
The mics are very close on the upright recording so that you can hear the keys being pressed and released. Yes, mm -hmm. you can. The pedal's creaking. And the pianist breathing. Well, I needed um, headphones for that, but um, I, didn't quite, I didn't have it all that loud, really, when I was listening through the speakers. Olafson was going for the effect of having the listener sitting on the piano bench with him on that upright piano mm -hmm. album. Yeah. But to be honest, the grand piano uh, disc is also very quiet. Also, due to the percussive materiality of the upright and the absence of forgiving overtones, new timings and textures were required in the interpretations as well as a different attention to structure. Okay, let's go through the program. I'll try to kind of hit both uh, pianos with each track. The first work we start with is uh, by Bach, Christe du Lam Gottes, Christ the Lamb of God, from his Orgel Bookline, PWV 619. This is arranged by George Kurtag. Let's see, this one, it's arranged by Kurtag. I'm guessing it's for a single piano because it sounds like it's a single piano here. We're immediately in the unique sound world Olafsson creates with his pinpoint gentle touch. This entire album, by the way, is very quiet. Yeah. <laughs> you can be generous with the volume if you like. Now, the music itself isn't always gentle, but the, the volume is. There's lots of sustain on the individual notes. The recording is close, as is always the case with Olafsson. He generally plays without loud attacks, and he conjures a murky cloud of bass sustain in the lower end on the grand piano version. The upright piano version of this piece is even more muted than the grand piano version, as you would imagine, with less sustain, so it's played a bit faster. I notice the melody notes are getting harder accents to throw them into higher relief on the upright piano version. Track two is uh, Robert Schumann, Study in Canonic Form, Opus 56, number one. Not a piece that you hear very often. This um, sounds like there's a mute pedal, the unacorda pedal, the one on the left of the grand piano, being used for the gentle attack on this piece, which feels like snow flurries gently pattering the ground. Like the opening track, this one is brief at just under two minutes. You could say the opening pieces come across as conversation starters, light talk between friends. The ending is warmly played. And it sounds like there's very little or no sustained pedal on the, the uh, upright piano version. The rippling effect of the texture comes across more starkly. Uh, again, this sounds faster than the grand piano version. There's a bell-like sound as the keynotes played are thrown into high relief. With the bass really submerged here, but still audible. I'm amazed always at the quietness that Olafsson is able to conjure in the bass notes. It's like he's just kind of touching the keys and they just kind of... Just kiss the strings, sort of. It's really amazing. He really is unique that way. Uh, third track, Bach, Adagio from Sonata for solo violin number three in C major, BWV 1005. This is arranged by Olafsson. Uh, in this guise, the Adagio, it, it's barely recognizable because we usually, we're used to hearing it on the solo violin and there's no harmony, mm -hmm. um, which it's only suggested there. So the timbres of the piano, too, is so different from the violin. And there are gentle chords adding harmony, guiding the ear. Uh, this is gently played with a beautiful tone, ringing in the high end. Olafsson's gradations of tone are remarkable. He gets an even gentler attack in the mid-range of the piano when the melody moves there. Uh, there's a nice realization of the false cadence at 3 minutes and 13 seconds. A very veiled tone on the upright piano with decent sustain used here. The false cadence appears at 3 minutes and 4 seconds, and the playing is very subdued and quiet. Track 4, we finally arrive at uh, Kurtag. This is his harmonica, homage à Borsode Laszlo uh, from Yatakak, book 3. 
The Krutog pieces are all very brief and playful. Uh, this has some odd harmonies, and it sounds a bit jokey after the Bach, as it should. It's from his games collection, after all. But it fits in well. The harmonies are mostly gentle, and the playing is very quiet. Uh, this comes across very differently on the upright, though. The modern harmonies really benefit from the sustain of the grand piano. Here, they, they deteriorate quickly, and some barely sound. It's an interesting profile. Track five, we get three Bartok pieces, three Hungarian folk songs from Cik, C-S-I-K, S-Z, I think that's Zekali, 35A. First movement, Rubato. This is interesting, I thought. It comes across on the grand piano as more Debussyan than Bartokian, at least in the way Olofsson plays it. The phrasing of the melody is a bit smoothed out, and the melodic contours are rounded with a mute of attack, and it's over at a minute and 11 seconds. I always kind of feel like Olafsson, I don't know, being Icelandic, he kind of removes the uh, paprika from <laughs> Bartok's <laughs> harmony and uh, phrasing. Uh, it's a little smoother. It sounded more kind of like impressionistic to me. Oddly, on the upright piano, this comes across as more of a Hungarian song. <laughs> Olafsson's shaping of the phrases is very subtly crafted. Track six is um, the second movement, Listesso Tempo. This one's even shorter and is a bit more active than the first song. It's taken slowly, and the harmony comes across more vividly of all elements, as in the first piece, reminding me again of Debussy. I'm hearing mostly the harmony here. I feel like that's what he's accenting on the grand piano. On the um, upright piano, the trills in the theme have a strong hammered percussive quality to them. There's something more symbolom-like about the upright piano performance. And track seven is movement three of the three Hungarian folk songs, Poco Vivo. Olafsson connects these three pieces like they're kind of one one movement mm. with three sections. And we have this brief song played in the manner of the first two. They all sound rather precious, caressed out of the piano, with the rich 20th century harmonic palette making the biggest impression. On the upright, I had mentioned Debussy, um, but here the harmonies on the upright don't come across in the same way, probably due to the lack of sustain. Uh, here the accompaniment is more harp-like uh, on the upright, with the melody in great contrast right up front. Okay, here we have another interesting interpretation of Brahms' Intermezzo in E major, opus 116, number four. Olafsson maintains the same type of attack for this piece as he used in the Bartok, showing its affinity to Bartok's harmonic coloring. As is often the case with Olafsson, this doesn't come across as the familiar Brahms work we've heard many times. It comes across more like a silhouette of the work we know, probably due to the soft attack that Olafsson uses. Now, this is a pretty quiet piece anyway, but it really sounds unfamiliar here. Hmm. The long pregnant pauses uh, between phrases add to that. Olafsson finds new ways of phrasing to give the work a sense of unfamiliarity or shows us an unrecognized side of the work that we weren't aware of, like finding out something new about an old friend. You know, you kind of know what your friend looks like, and then he shows up wearing this uh, wild suit or something, or <laughs> something more subdued that he normally wears in this case, I guess. And you're like, hey, is that you? I didn't know. Okay, that's kind of what I felt like here. So far, there's nothing on this album that would wake you out of a doze. Um, the playing is also close to the keys and gentle. At 2 minutes and 35 seconds into the Brahms uh, piece, there is some discrete pedal to enrich the sound of the piano. In the upright piano version, this still doesn't come up as the Brahms work I'm familiar with. <laughs> it's much quieter. And phrased in Olafsson's idiosyncratic way, but differently than in the grand piano version. The sustain on the notes is very short, due not only to the instrument, but to the quiet level that Olafsson is playing at. There's a strong muted quality to the main figure when it reappears at 3 minutes and 22 seconds, 
And we get some volume afterwards as well. Track nine, back to George Kurtag. This piece is called The Voice in the Distance from Yatakok Book 5. 5 or 5, I don't know, I may have made a mistake there, 5B. This is very quietly taken and a very sparse melody that's allowed to sustain. It's muted and it reminds me a bit of uh, Debussy's, if you know his uh, Footprints in the Snow prelude. It comes across as mysterious. The upright piano version is very muted on, and uh, the accompaniment is uh, distantly registering. The bass note sounding almost puddle-like, like you have this kind of <laughs> bass puddle that you've stepped in, and all these um, sort of higher notes are. It's it's just kind of wetting all those higher notes, sort of. Uh, the, the higher notes all register pretty strongly. Okay. Track 10. This is kind of interesting. Uh, Snorri Sigfus Birgisson, um, Where Life and Death May Dwell. This is an Icelandic folk song. It's interesting because I was just listening to a piece by this uh, composer today on an oh. Icelandic, an album of Icelandic uh, choral music. So here he is again. I think this is a setting, though, of a, of a song that already existed. It's more melodic than the atmospheric Kurtag piece that uh, preceded it. There's a softly cushioned attack that we've been hearing throughout and a pretty melody that's rather inconclusively ended. On the upright version, um, the playing is highly muted. The repeated notes in the theme come across more percussively, and the material in the higher end is accented more strongly to make it sustain more, I guess. Track 11 is Bach, Allegro Moderato from Trio Sonata No. 1 in E-flat major. Uh, BWV 525, arranged by George Kurtag. And this features um, Olafsson's wife, Hala Odni Magnus Dottir, as the uh, third hand. This is arranged for three hands on one piano. Here with the third hand playing, we hear something louder and more lively, breaking the spell of the first ten tracks a bit. Olafsson and Hala blend well together. It's funny, though, you can tell which hand is Hala's. Because her, her playing has a brighter attack to it. Mm. Olafsson has a really unique sound. He's very muted and cushioned in his attack, even when they, even when he's not using the unicorda pedal. On the upright piano version, the melodic material is played with a staccato feel, and despite the instrument, Olafsson manages amazing gradations of volume and tone in the separate voices. They all seem to have different textures of tone as well as attack. Track 12, Sigvaldi Caldalons. Ave Maria, arranged by Olafsson. Caldelon's he's a pretty interesting character himself, who was an Icelandic doctor hmm. who composed between seeing patients and going on house calls. <laughs> <laughs> so he's kind of like, uh, who's the American poet? William Carlos Williams. He was a dentist and he wrote poems in between seeing patients. <laughs> and Borodin was another one. He was, a, I think he was a doctor as well. He just composed in his spare time. Anyway, that's uh, Caldelon's. Um, this work is often heard at weddings, this Ave Maria, and funerals in Iceland, but was written for the theater. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> the uh, upright version is cloudy. It has a cloudy arpeggiated bass attack achieved by subtle pedaling. I'm sorry, this is the uh, grand piano version. It has a cloudy arpeggiated bass attack achieved by subtle pedaling at Olafsson's characteristic soft attack. The melody just reaches its head above this quiet accompaniment, keeping to a quiet melodic profile itself. The melody is soothing and very pretty. And in the upright version, not much sustain on the upright. It has a more veiled tone, but the gradation of tone between the accompaniment and melody is amazing. The tone in the accompanying arpeggiated figure is very muted. Track 13, Kurtag, um, Little Chorale from Yatakok, Book 1. This, like the previous Yatakok chosen for this recording, 
all the previous ones, is quiet and spacious. I just want to mention that Kurtag's Yatakak works aren't all like this. Olafsson has chosen the real quiet chord-based ones for mm. this recording. But there are loads of them, and they are in every imaginable uh, mood. All right. Anyway, in this one, there's a chord crescendo that gets interrupted, then an odd chord, and the piece ends. It's rather amusing. On the upright version, gently struck chords allowed to ring and sustaining rather well on the upright piano. I guess with the sustain pedal all the way down and just the right level of attack, it's a far more matte sound than the grand piano has. And then we get to track 14, Mozart. Whoa. Laudate Dominum. This is not a piano work. It's arranged by Olafsson for the piano here. He arranged this after he and Kurtog discussed Mozart during their meeting. All composers do this. Mozart is, along with Bach, the king. I mean, he's just so great. <laughs> There's just no getting around it. Composers just love him. I love him too. He's the most performed uh, composer in the world, and uh, as it should be, I say. Anyway, this has a pretty standard Chopin-esque um, arpeggiated bass under Mozart's melody. Again, one gets the sense of the hammers being given just enough pressure to sound the accompaniment as the melodic material rings out a bit more. And what a smooth, buttery trill we get just before the ending. On the upright version, much like the previous works, uh, this one comes across with a more matte music box quality to it. Uh, the melody is differentiated from the arpeggiated accompaniment by touch, and the arpeggiated part has a very different veiled sound to it, whereas the melody is fairly bright. Track 15, George Kurtog, Sleepily, from Yetikok, Book 1. Getting into a little theme here of sleep. This work uh, starts with interesting chords, followed by an upright scale, then another chord, then a descending scale. Timbres are harsh but faint. The gentle harmonics caused by the complex chords hover above the keyboard. This really is a lead-in thematically to the next piece, also about sleep. The upright version has some pretty interesting woody percussive sounds. Uh, on this one, uh, during light scalar runs. Interesting textures on the upright version that we don't hear on the grand piano version. Track 16, continuing the theme of sleep, is Schumann's very famous uh, Traumare from his Scenes from Childhood, Opus 15, number 7. It's amazing to me that this work doesn't stand out, but it seems of a piece with what we're hearing. It's recognizable as the famous Schumann piece, but it's an interpretation, as is so often the case with Olafsson, that keeps with the tone of the program and is phrased in Olafsson's unique way. He plays this with light retards in it. It sounds like it goes by fast. So he's, I think he's um, focusing on the melodic shape of the lines and of the whole structure of the piece. It doesn't attempt to suspend time as, for example, Horowitz's performances of this do. The upright version is taken at a faster speed still, and I guess making sure all the voices connect. All harmonies are clearly audible. This comes across as more stark on the upright version, without the rich overtones of the grand. We seem to get through this pretty fast. All lines are well outlined and connected. Not much hard on sleeve going on here. Track 17, Kurtag, Flowers We Are, from Yatakak, Book 5. There's no pause between this and Schumann. This is a quieter movement with long, or piece with long sustained notes in the arpeggiated chords that make up the material. On the upright version, harmonics are the key, but they're muted on the smaller upright and fade quickly. There's a bit of harmonic cloud generated on the upright version. Track 18, a little surprise, Thomas Addis, contemporary composer. Hmm. His work, The Branch, which is actually a Hungarian, has, originally has a Hungarian title, Az Ag. 
Ades is a friend of Kurtag's and uh, wrote this piece specifically for this album. It's named after the Hungarian poem Az Ag by Sándor Vere, who lives from 1913 to 1989. This could be of a piece with the Kurtag works. It's soft, it sounds inventive, and it's brief at a minute and 21 seconds. It's very quiet, with some enticing chords, quietly taken, and lots to hear in the harmonic cloud. On the upright version, this comes with a more ghostly feel, with the chords sort of popping the harmony out of the piano. Track 19, Kurtag, Twittering, from Yetzkak, Book 1. This features um, Olofsson's wife again, Hala Adni Magnus Dottir. Um, this is for four hands on one keyboard. In this one, um, it's called Twittering, and Hala, Olofsson's wife, is the bird, with Vikinger as the forest. It comes across as rather abstract with bird twitterings in the high end and a repeated figure in the middle range. On the upright version, the repeated high note here almost sounds metallic in its tapping quality. The rest is played so quietly, it's as if it wants to trigger the harmonics only. (laughs) The upright version of that is pretty interesting. Track 19. Track 20, Schumann, Vogel als Prophet, opus 82, number 7. This has a familiar melody, a bit more slowly played here than usual. The accompanying chords are very quiet, and the arpeggiated chords leading up to the melody are thrown into relief. At a minute and 30 seconds, we're into a middle section, more chord-based, and played with more firmness by Olafsson. By 2 minutes and 17 seconds, we're back to the opening material. Sensitively played, more so as it goes on, right up to the subtle ending notes. The upright version has a veiled, muted quality to the melody, and the melodic material is in stark relief. Track 21, we get another Brahms intermezzo, the one in E minor, opus 116, number 5. The gentle attack and cushioned sound make this come across more abstractly than usual, as was the case with the previous Brahms intermezzo that we heard. Not like the meditative romantic work I generally hear it as. It's amazing how Olofsson makes everything he plays sound so new and reimagined. The upright version is taken at a much quicker speed to connect the two chord phrases. It achieves a bit of an arpeggiated flow to it in the first minute. These works really catch Brahms in a private mood and are well in keeping with the theme of this album. Olofsson, especially here I'd say, draws out the private nature of Brahms' work exceptionally well. And track 22, we end with George Kurtag, the man of the hour on this album. Scraps of a Kolinda melody faintly recollected. Homage a Farkas Ferenc from Yatikok, book three. This is the longest of the Kurtag works on this recording at three minutes and 20 seconds. The rest of them are just about a minute long. The opening melody is monophonic, as is so often the case with works in Yatikok, and is played with plenty of sustain despite the quiet sound. Olofsson allows the notes to sustain to maximum length on the grand piano. The piece just ends with one of the notes sustaining to silence without a sense of resolution. With the grand piano version of this album, you could easily doze off and not be aware of the wispy sounds that add together to make up the program. There are really no shocks. There's some harmonic um, mm. dissonances, but uh, nothing that's really going to jolt you out of you know your sort of the way you're feeling if you happen to be close enough. On the upright version, a more muted tone is heard, which sustains fairly well. Uh, the percussive quality of the hammer hitting the string registers especially in the mid-range notes. So, man, <laughs> really wiped out talking about this, just thinking about it again. It's an album that did kind of wipe me out. It was, there was a lot mm. to listen to. Olafson's music is always just so interesting. His playing, I should say, is so interesting. He's put together a pretty unique 
program here. I would say this album is something for late night contemplation, uh, especially one if you've happened to have a late night coffee and you're, you have insomnia and you're not going to go to bed anytime soon. This is really ideal for that. The program is about 51 minutes long in both versions, and it's easy to sit through and absorb in a single listening section. In fact, I felt rather compelled by the playing to hear the whole thing uh, being led from piece to piece by Olafsson's playing. So I did listen to this in two sittings, but I listened to the entire program all the way through because it was really that compelling. It was hard to stop. You just mm. didn't want to kind of turn it off. It's an enjoyable record and remarkably sensitive playing. In fact, it's practically all very quiet playing. Hearing the program on two instruments is something that will excite piano nerds like me. And um, <laughs> I'm wondering, though, how many of them are out there? Um, let's find out. This album provides an example of what our podcast, really, adult music, is about, breaking down a program and discussing the results of differing approaches. Mm. Basically, this is almost this album is almost like a, a, a musical manifestation of what we're trying to do on this podcast. Uh, Olofsson really is one of the most fascinating classical pianists out there, and for that reason alone, this merits a listen. It actually feels like an interesting evening spent in his private company. I don't feel like it would have been an evening better spent doing something else. Does anybody know the story of uh, you know, Sally Chisholm? She was pals with uh, Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett, and she rather famously said about them uh, that both were worth knowing. And I really feel like that's the case with um, Olafsson himself. If you just spend some time with this album, I think you'll find that Olafsson, for his playing, is worth knowing. And so is Kurtog, too. Well, I'm really big fan of Olafsson's playing. I listen to him a lot. And this was interesting because whereas he kind of dazzled me with technique on the, especially the previous Bach recording and right. uh, the Mozart one too, uh, this one's all about subtle expression. But moreover, this one is all about the programming, as you just explained in detail. And that's what he seems to, you know, the more releases I listen to from him, the programming is what draws me back. So this is two sets of recordings of the same works on different pianos. That's a very unique idea. And, mm-hmm. and I'm amazed that Deutsche Gramophone went for it, too. Yeah. You have to have really the record company's trust I here. guess after he got the feather on the cover of that one, he could <laughs> do anything he wanted. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but that's right. The muted upright so closely recorded and intimate, you do really feel like you're sitting with him, and it mm-hmm. creates completely different impressions of the pieces than the grand piano. And with the programming here, just as on the WC Rameau recording, which alternated works by the two composers, and it really kind of defied my expectations. I didn't think that was going to work out, and somehow it does. And the more I listen to it, it's just really interesting. That's actually my favorite recording by him, yeah. by Olafsson, the Debussy Remo. So here the programming mix, you know, Bach, Mozart, Brahms, Schumann, mixed with Kurtog. It doesn't seem yeah. like this is going to work. And I really don't know what to make of Kurtog a lot of times when I've heard his music. But mm. here, in these small portions, you know, it's sort of like uh, getting a food that you don't normally eat and you're not so crazy about, but you have it in a a buffet or on a dish with all these other things that just sort of make it work, you know, in that kind of small amount. And I thought the contrast with the other works made it easier for my ears to digest the Kurtog and uh, savor the little morsels of it. And so, yeah, another really interesting approach to a program. I just wonder what he'll come up with next, but I'll be sure to be interested to check it out as soon as it comes out. 
Oh, me. Me too. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to say one more thing. You know, he's Icelandic, but he seems to have been in this um, sort of um, school, the Hungarian kind of way mm. of learning to play the piano. I really do admire them because we, in America, yeah. what did we, I used like Czerny and, you know, the, the German stuff really, mm. you know, that, that we learned. And if you're going to learn harmony, you're going to do um, what Walter Piston, right? Right. But in Hungary, they use uh, Bartok and now Kurtok too and Kodai. So they have this mm. really cool music that right. um, yeah. all those composers wrote these um, sort of graded sort of um, set of works for right. a pianist to learn the piano on. And I think that's just so amazing. I really envy them that, mm -hmm. you know, they have, I think they get this really unique sort of music education there. Anyway, so I, you get a little taste of that on this album, I think. Okay. <laughs> I need a drink after that. <laughs> but I've still got one more album to yeah. go. And this is another um, one that I really liked a lot. Actually, I was a little, it was uh, mm -hmm. more appealing than I thought it would be. Uh, this is, um, last week we did a record of Estonian um, orchestral music. This week we're doing Latvian chamber music. The album is called PPP, not for pianissimo, pianissimo, but more, the P's are all for the three, uh, the last names of the three composers on the album. They're Latvian composers, and uh, they are Petrus Plakidis, Kristaps Petersons, and George Pelesis. I hope I said those right names right. This is by uh, Gidon Kramer, the violinist, and Kramerata Baltica. And this is on the Scani label, um, which is a Latvian label, uh, Division of the Latvian Music Information Center, or LMIC. Uh, Gidon Kramer is really one of the world's great violinists, and he's been championing Latvian music his whole life. He rather famously recorded the uh, Pedrus Vasques violin concerto, Distant Light, and made that a famous work. And he's also very famously on um, the Estonian composer, Arvo Pertz, um, very famous album, um, which he recorded with Keith Jarrett doing mm. Fratres. And uh, it, yeah, that, on the ECM label, that's one of the, that's another one of those records along with Feather on the Breath of God by Gothic Voices. That's one of the most, one of those recordings that everybody who likes classical music has to have. Mm. It's required listening. Anyway, here we're getting a feast of uh, Latvian music. Uh, these titles are all given uh, in the original Latvian first on the album. I'm not going to even try to pronounce those. So I'm just going for the English <laughs> titles here. Okay. Apologies to Latvian listeners. Although we are doing the album. So anyway, tracks one through three, the composer uh, Petrus Plakidis. He lived 1947 to 2017. He is the only uh, deceased. Uh, is he? Let me see. Yeah, he's the only deceased composer on this album. The rest are all contemporary. This is his little concerto for two violins. And the violinists here are uh, Guidon Kramer and Madara Pedersons. This was uh, composed in 1991. All right, there are three movements to this. And the only thing we hear are two violins playing together. The first track is called Singing Together. This has an immediately appealing quality. If you're kind of afraid of the big, bad contemporary music, you should just go right to this album. I think you'll like it. The two violins are playing the same theme in the beginning, repeating and overlapping them. It's folk-like and cheerful, no vibrato, and it sounds playful. Just all these things that invite us into listening and even playing music. Soon the material starts moving beyond its initial melody, providing accompaniment and a harmony, while the other violin melodizes. The initial theme is never far away. At 2 minutes and 25 seconds is a rather melting theme, slowly taken, with great character by the two soloists. We get one more rapid iteration of the opening material before reaching the end. All we hear in this piece are the two violins, of course. 
Second movement is called Evening Music. Uh, a very quiet, fragmented opening is heard here, uh, either by one violin or by the two who are kind of assembling each other's lines. I can't really tell. I'd have to see it to know. We clearly hear both violins by the 27th second mark as one provides a repeated arpeggiated line and the other a very conjunct melody, meaning there are no leaps in it. Again, it's immediately appealing and rather minimalist in approach. Uh, once the interacting lines get going, they keep repeating similar material and similar textures. At 3 minutes and 38 seconds, we get a louder violin line, actually piercing through the texture and playing above the drone and repeating figures in the accompanying violin. By the fifth minute, the violin in the bass range has the main melody as the upper violin plays figuration. Again, this is appealing all the way through. And very simple, too. It's very easy on the ear and the brain. The third uh, movement, the road, um, has an upward ticking motion starting it off on one of the violins. The other plays a shorter, quicker line against it. Uh, we start again in minimalist feel with a lot of repeating patterns. As in the previous movement, one of the violins rises above the material and plays more melodic material. The ticking rhythm is constant throughout, at least in outline. It's always implied when it's not heard. At 4 minutes and 12 seconds, there's a sudden pause, then a bit of a rhythmic change as the music becomes a bit more rustic sounding uh, in the mid-range of the two violins, one of them rising up into the higher range. It ends on a rather humorous, good-natured, last-second cadence. These works are a fun listen, and they sound fun to play also, should you play the violin and have a violin-playing friend. Mm. <laughs> Get together and yeah. pick up this score. Track 4, um, Christophs Pedersons, born in 1982 ground for double bass solo and uh, he himself the composer is playing the double bass on this track this uh, sounds like a pizzicato octave starting the piece with a large interval of time in between attacks there's a lot of quiet rumbling in the beginning in the beginning as though the work is to be enjoyed by the soloist and anyone standing close by there's some impressively rich pluckings of the lowest strings as the piece goes on uh, the instrument is richly recorded here and produces a full sound. I rather enjoyed this piece. It's a very minimal composition, sort of a bass line, supporting no harmony above it. Hence the term ground. A ground is like the ground bass, and then there's like sort of a mm. set of variations above it. Here we get the ground only. Think of, um, if you know um, that Purcell piece, um, When I Am Laid in Earth from Dido and Aeneas, it starts out with that ground bass, and then the vocalist starts singing. Try to imagine only hearing that bass line without the, <laughs> without the vocalist. That's basically what you're getting here. Um, the piece ends, with, but it's more interesting than that, I think. It doesn't just repeat. The piece ends with the bass simply stopping its bass line. Track five. Whoa, this was really interesting. Pi equals 3.14 for two double basses, percussion, <laughs> and recording. Uh, this one yeah. has uh, Pedersen's The Composer on the uh, double bass, and Yuri Gavrilyuk plays the other double bass, Andrei Pushkarev, on the vibraphone. The percussion and uh, recorded elements provide some pretty interesting timbres in this almost nine-minute piece. The two basses are front and center, one digging into the bass end and the other playing material higher up. The recorded material sounds mostly electronic in the way you'd hear in the 1950s and 60s, so it's kind of spacey. Um, I always feel relieved when the basses come back in in this piece. Um, I have to confess, I like their material. It's simple and appealing. A gift Pedersen seems to have in composition. There's some cool, very low percussion or electronics from 3 minutes and 30 seconds onward that feel like they're 
excavating the wax out of my ears lower range i, I feel like it just <laughs> loosened all the wax in my ears listen to this with a subwoofer uh, in this piece it's really very powerful <laughs> and low uh, well captured on the recording i really didn't start to notice the vibraphone until the last few minutes of the piece it may be there earlier but it makes its presence felt more firmly toward the end or it may have just entered at the end generally speaking this piece takes on a minimal feel and i rather liked it there's nothing here that will chase tender-eared family members from the room. So I guess your wife stuck around for this one. <laughs> she might have. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, Don't remember. Okay, well, track six through eight. A couple days. Where, where is she? Hey. <laughs> oh. oh, maybe that's why. It's, it's the bass. All about nice. that bass. It's always about the bass. Track six through eight. Christophs Pedersen's again. Music for a large ensemble. This is played by uh, Cremorata Letonica. The first movement, eighth note equals 124, is very brief at 52 seconds. It's got a percussive accompaniment and a guitar-like, or maybe the piano harp being plucked in the thematic material. I can't really tell what this instrument is. Uh, the large ensemble isn't used at all here. In track uh, two, eighth note equals 82, it's longer at two minutes and 29 seconds and starts more atmospherically with reverberating gentle percussion sounds. Uh, the piece is basically a series of repeating patterns that crescendos overall, ending with a single drawn-out bowed note. The third uh, movement and final movement, eighth note equals 124, same as the first movement. Uh, there's a repeating dancing figure on what sounds like a cello in this longest of the three movements. It's 5 minutes and 39 seconds. The percussion, mostly vibraphone it sounds like, is playing material above the dancing cello. Um, Vibrato-less string chords come in and add their material. At a minute and 32 seconds, the entire texture and rhythm suddenly changes to something more static as the violin rhapsodizes. There are some pretty cool percussive sounds breaking out under a repeating low bass note from 2 minutes 30 seconds to 3 minutes. We even hear an electric guitar at one point from the 3 minute mark on, and we reach a more aggressive electric sound by the 5th minute. Uh, the first aggressive sounds on the album, really. It crescendos and suddenly stops with only a violin in its very high range, squeaking out a single note for the ending. The last track on the album is by Georges Pelisis, I hope, <laughs> I don't know, P-E-L-E-C-I-S, with a line over the E. He was born in 1947. Three pieces from Fiori Musicali, performed by Cremorata Baltica. This acts as a follow-up to a work called uh, Flowering Jasmine, which Pelisis wrote in 2007 for Guidon Kremer. The piece is uh, named Fiori Musicali after Girolamo Frescobaldi's collection of liturgical organ music from the 17th century. Pelisis says he writes music to express his delight in the mightiness and beauty of God's creation. This is a very common theme with um, East European countries, by the way. They really do tend to uh, look to nature and to God's creation as their inspiration. The natural elements and landscapes, the seasons, flora and fauna, are life's inexhaustible forms and the endless varieties of its beauty. To be honest, not a bad way to spend one's life celebrating the beauty of uh, nature of God's creation, mm. and not a bad way to end the album either. Track one, The Lone Kala, uh, features Andrei Pushkarev on vibraphone, was composed in 2017. Um, it starts with warm strings, a chord is repeated twice, then the thematic material builds from there. Non-vibrato, it's a massed but stark sound. The music will pass between phrases, then resume. It's a rather tranquil work. There's a volume swell to the second minute that quickly dissipates. 
the pattern of short phrases, repeated short phrase extension holds until about three minutes and 30 seconds when there's a sudden change to a percussive sound, a metallic tone with vibrato. That's the vibraphone. We never go back to the strings. The piece ends on a tonic with the percussion. It's a simple piece and satisfying. Second movement, Dance of the Peonies, written in 2020. Circling string figures with louder two-note bowed phrases acting as thematic material. By the 47 second mark, the thematic material warms up and provides something more open-hearted and bright. The melodic form is simple. It's sort of call and response, A, B, sort of. At two minutes and 42 seconds, there's a contrast. The strings quieten and thin out for a new theme with pizzicato in the accompaniment. There's a louder bowed outburst heard twice. The second time it takes over and generates material until about the four minute and 50 second mark when the quieter material finally returns. And this ends with a lovely harmonic chords. The third movement and final movement, Cosmea Melancholy, featuring Guidon Kramer on violin and Andrei Pushkarev on vibraphone, composed in 2020. It has a stark opening in the lower strings with violin playing the main melody, sounding rather veiled in tone in an interesting way. The percussion, the vibraphone, comes in gently at 2 minutes and 19 seconds, playing the melody as the violin plays a counter melody, and the piece sort of resolves at the end. Now, I really liked this album, and part of the reason is, when I remember hearing music like this in the 1980s, now this is all post-1980 music, from Eastern Europe and from Russia at the time, the so- which would have been the Soviet Union at the time. It had a lightness to it that belied the really heavy, oppressive, intellectual, contemporary music we were hearing in the 1970s and 1960s, the electronic music, the 12-tone, dodecaphonic, abstract sort of music. This was really different than that. And I think this is sort of in that sort of family. All these works were composed long after, or in um, the case of the Plakidis, just right after the uh, Soviet Union fell. And I found it to be a relief at the time. It surprised me that it was coming out of the Soviet Union, too. I wondered what was going on there, and it turns out that it was quite a lot, as we know from Arvo Pert in Estonia. This album put me in mind of those newer, lighter discoveries that I made like when I was younger, so I immediately took to it. It told me that classical music didn't have to be ponderous and heavy and making big statements all the time, but could be light and fun as well, as was especially the first work on this album. Uh, The works on the album are easy to listen to and immediately appealing. I wouldn't call them childlike, but perhaps they're reminiscent of the feeling of childhood in the way that Schumann's scenes from childhood are, like childhood from an adult perspective. While I'm sure Latvian composers are producing heavier music than this, I think of Petrus Vasks. Um, This is a refreshing album for the ears, much more so than last week's album of Estonian symphonic works, which was heavier, but... Excellent, but a lot heavier. Immediately appealing and a pleasant discovery all the way through. It all feels very fresh to me and ready to proceed onward from its current point. This music feels like it's at the beginning of something, like it could generate more, even more interesting music in the future. And I would recommend hearing it. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I was, I'm going to have to listen to this some more to really have a feel for it. I mean, other than being Latvian as the common theme for the yeah. music and it's very having, different. having more vibes on one recording than anything classical we've uh, listened yeah. to before. That was kind of interesting. That's a good thing though. Um, oh, yeah. The works all have a very different 
nature and character to them. So uh, you're going to get shifted through a variety of material. I guess the easiest one with for me to enjoy was the first one, the right. Placidus, just uh, the two violins. And normally I'm not a huge fan of just violin music, but this was really enjoyable. These kind of uh, modal things, very rhythmic, uh, lots of interplay and excitement. As you said, uh, if you play violin and you have a friend, this would be a real fun one to uh, work on, I think. It's just got a lot of uh, exciting interaction uh, between the two. And the Petersons, the, uh, I guess, I don't know, the, uh, you know, when they have like recording and electronics things, uh, <laughs> I, I generally don't like that kind of thing. Although I did like the, the very low, you know, kind of like, yeah. you know, removing the fillings from your teeth sound that they, you know. <laughs> Pi equals 3.14. Yeah. I love those low fun. bass sounds. And the vibes in there uh, with the violins. That was kind of interesting. I have to listen to this one uh, again. Uh, and then I think it was a guitar in there. Yeah, there was too. a guitar. Yeah, yeah. so it's a, yeah. the combination of instrumentation was very interesting. And yeah. I, I, I guess I like the last piece to the, uh, how do you say this? Pelicis? Pelicis? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I don't know. Well, Could be Pelicis. Okay. I don't um, know. I like the flowing movements in uh, the first movement there, and uh, the ringing vibes are really surprising at the end, too. And uh, some of the string works are interesting, that kind of lightly tiptoeing kind of pizzicato in there in the string sections. And overall, it was kind of uh, taking me to different places because there was a lot of variety there. And uh, as you said, it's not uh, it's not a bombastic kind of giant uh, sound recording. It's kind not, of a medium range, and uh, yeah. I think it's rather modest. It's really, it's a modest, yeah. But for uh, getting a picture of Latvian music in sort of modern times with new composers, it was kind of instructive to me. I'll probably give it another listen and see what my second impression of these works is like. Yeah, I want to say to our Latvian listeners, um, I do try to get the pronunciations of the composers' names from the internet, but I couldn't <laughs> find these. So if they're wrong, you know, I, I, was, I, I once dated a, a Latvian woman. If, you know, if only she was still around, I could get those pronunciations right, but she's, she's long gone. <laughs> it's too bad. Sorry to hear that. All right. We're going to transition to the jazz section now. And uh, to start out, I've got another piano trio debut recording that I'm really excited about. And yeah. uh, I just think it's uh, bursting with energy and lots of uniqueness here. And uh, last week we were in uh, the Netherlands. This week we're going to go to Spain with huh. uh, Adrian Royo Trio. This is on Erebal Jazz Label and Pangea. Hmm. And I don't know much about Royo. There's not a lot online about him other than he studied piano performance, jazz studies as well at Fundatio Conservatory Liceo. Hmm. And that's all I know about him other than he's got this killer <laughs> debut recording out here. Along with him on piano, we've got Gonzalo Del Val on drums and Manel Fortia on bass. And a really interesting album cover there. And it opens with the title track, Pangea. And so this idea of uh, a one continent kind of thing and things emerging in a developing world comes through this first track. It starts out with a repeating D and C notes kind of thing going on that continues on the piano. There's some ghostly harmonic bass bowing that adds a primeval mystery to the sound clicky drums and what might be an udu drum in there 
get a beat going as the bass switches to short rhythmic bows. Then there's a repeated eight bar, low bowed bass and piano left hand melody line. Next, an eight bar transition section with just added syncopated piano chords over the rhythm that continues. Uh, it still feels in four, but another eight bars with more animated syncopated piano leads into a section with more chiming high note piano chords, ending with some tricky syncopated ending phrases and bass and left hand piano figures. It sort of resets to the opening rhythm uh, without the piano alternating notes this time. And Fortilla is up on bass for a bowed bass solo that bends pitches and ends in furious fast bows <laughs> under trickling piano figures with descending harmonies. A new groove forms over a solid bass ostinato and Royal works up a piano solo. It has cool changing modal harmonies but focuses on percussive accented syncopated playing. He works that back into the chiming chords we heard before with some trills added and the same ending lines of bass and piano. Then we go back to the opening alternating notes and a little bit of the bass melody before some final percussion jamming over rhythmic bass bowing and short, maybe kind of muted piano notes to end it. It's an exciting tune and gives you this feeling of a new world developing out of something. Mm. I was really captivated from this one. Track two is called Palitos, which I think means sticks, as in like uh, claves, Hmm. percussive clicking sticks. There's a two-bar drum intro. It brings it into a melody of really fast, snappy right-hand uh, figures on the piano over open fifth chords, starting with the same C and D that we heard in the previous track, Pangea. It seems to be a 24-bar form with a modulated B section and then an extra four bars of a transition into a rhythmic change-up to a blazing swing uh, hmm. for a solo from Royo over furious walking on the bass by Fortia. His really energy-packed but smooth runs and rhythmic figures in his right hand and more percussive left-hand chords. He finishes the solo with a great synced line with the bass. Uh, Delval has been keeping up speedy cymbal work, but now he gets a drum solo, working less busy ideas with nice ringing snare and tom work. And they finish up with another run through the melody and that cool figure we heard at the end of the piano solo. Another high-energy tune. Now we're going to get something a little different. Track three, Bangkok. And I don't know how he's doing this at the beginning of the tune. Maybe it's a, some type of uh, muting on the piano strings, or he's actually striking the strings. I, I'm not sure. Uh, but it creates... Yeah, it a, sounds plucked to me. Yeah. Like he's, um, well, yeah. I, I'm thinking more hammered, like a bouncy yeah. kind of dulcimer mm. type of effect is achieved. It's like this cool oriental type pentatonic kind of opening section and the rhythmic effect is kind of like a mallet striking would be doing on an instrument well that goes on for about 45 seconds and then rhythmic alternating piano chords get a 5-4 groove started uh, Deval adds a clicky beat and Fortia hypnotic bass and it works into a different feel with more flowing piano lines for a section before going back to the rhythmic piano figures and featuring some cool bass and left hand piano rising and falling lines. Arroyo picks up on those line ideas with his right hand to move into a piano solo that has some ascending percussive chords that disguise the meter and morph it into a heavy swing and now 4-4 four four, with 12 bar altered chord blues phrases for soloing. That's uh, a really cool change. 
and Fortia digs in hard on walking bass. Arroyo's bursting with ideas in short running phrases and percussive chords with some bluesy ideas too over the changing harmonies. Uh, they end up with the ascending chord idea again, leading back into the 5-4 groove uh, from the beginning of the main tune. They go through the flowing section to a pause, and then some final rubato piano and cool rising bass glisses for an ending. So it's a very cool construction and meter switch from 5-4 to 4-4, and you go all the way from that weird Asian atmosphere opening into the blues solo section. So a really interesting combination of sound elements. Track four is called Technology. This one starts with an eight-measure piano phrase of a busy triplet figures over left-hand intervals and the whole idea descends. They repeat it, and Delval adds soft brush skittering on the drums. I was feeling it in four when I started to hear it, but the next section makes it clear that it's a six-eight kind of meter. Uh, It's an eight-bar section repeated with interval figures worked together in the piano and bass. Next is another repeated eight-bar section, this time with the piano working the rhythmic a melody idea and ringing low bass notes below. Fortia comes out of that with a bass solo with great ringing tone, cool hammered on notes, and an unhurried but rhythmic phrasing, including some cool harmonies. Uh, he makes it really sing on the bass. And then Delval had been sticking to soft textures on the drums under the bass, but it gets subdivided and busy again for a piano solo from Royal. It's rhythmically creative and works up into great lines of ringing chimes and intense melody built around the theme. He really presses it with a yearning intensity. They bring it back through the melody section we heard earlier to a sudden emphatic ending on a low F on the piano. Track five, How Kong. Royal starts this one out on piano with a cool syncopated pattern of four chords in two measures of a six beat rhythm. He goes around that a couple times and then gets joined by bass for a couple rounds and then drums as well. They have a nice groove going and break it up once nicely before continuing on and introducing some piano melody lines that alternate with measures of the groove riff. There's a little more subdued strain of piano into some accented chords and then the rhythmic rug gets pulled out from under you uh, with a complete stop and some rubato piano and really zipping piano lines from Royo. Uh, He gets more delicate and flowing into more zipping and then some soft dissonances. And then the real fun begins here with the fast repeated left hand rhythmic figure and his right hand taking off on a running journey of its own. Uh, It slows down and his hands come together in movement to work into some ringing rhythmic figures to bring back the bass and drums and that brings back the melody lines. And then some vamping on the riff uh, for Deval to do some drum work as it fades out. Man, this is really exciting, <laughs> high-energy <laughs> tune here as well. All this is original compositions uh, by Roy, I should add. Track six, Rienkuentro. A solo ringing bass starts it out, and Fortia plays some interesting stuff here. Sometimes really hard attacks, intervals together and alternating with cool slides, and he brings it into tempo at the end, up high for the others to join in with a softer ballad melody and an interesting 17 measure length of phrase. Uh, Royo takes a round for a solo, ringing relaxed and pretty phrases with lush chords over the deep throbbing and ringing bass underneath, a Delval on soft brushing. Royo gets to show off a softer side with nice flowing high register lines. They take it through the melody another time with a little tag of piano trickles and percussion chimes. It's very subtle and uh, pretty playing here by Royal. Track seven, Linea 
one or uno, maybe. Uh, hmm. Back to the rhythmic business for this tune. It's in a three-beat feel with a fast syncopated and subdivided bass and piano ostinato figure for the first eight bars. The bass keeps it going while Royo mixes the piano ideas with chords and then snappy rhythmic right-hand figures for a couple rounds. Then it gets some harmonic movement and lightens up while keeping in tempo. Delval drops the driving drumming for cymbal textures and some other rain stick-like uh, washy sounds. Royal moves it with gentle chords into a bass solo from Portia. He builds tension with rising lines, sliding pitches, tense harmonies, and rapid articulation on tight high notes. It's like he's trying to reach the sky, but then slips away down into some with some cool bends and percussive bass ideas. It gets chugging again with bass and rhythmic chords from Royal, and they get back into the rhythmic pattern from the start and the different sections. And they finish it with a softer section with hi-hat, ringing bass, and light dancing high register lines from Royo. Track eight, Oborenes. Royo starts it out with a flowing triplet figure in the right hand over a rising interval idea in the bass. Drums and bass uh, join in for a few cycles. Royo adds new higher right hand, sort of uh, runs on the top. I said uh, Garaldi-esque. I don't know if that's a word, but it reminded me of a Vince Garaldi kind of uh, right. figure. Uh, the original triplet idea returns softer with some harmonic movement and bass harmonics that perk up underneath into a bass solo from Fortia over sustained piano backing from Royal and delicate drums from Delval. Fortia makes another ringing and reaching solo with cool rhythmic ideas along the way. It's very intense. Uh, he then lays down a deep bass groove and Delve gets a snappy drum groove to match it for a solo from Royo. He plays some chiming and running figures in the upper register before coming down in the middle uh, for some more rhythmic descending ideas and then percussive ideas and some more of those zippy runs. They give some space with piano chords and bass ringing out for Delve to do some drum work before returning with the triplet motif from the beginning and end with some soft piano and cosmic bass bowing sounds. And we're going to end up the recording with Himno de Miranda, a hymn for Miranda, a solo piano piece by Royal. It's rubato, but it has some dazzling runs and moments of exuberance, as well as a real sense of playfulness hinting at different styles of classical blues and gospel in little excursions, all wrapped up with a lovely ending. So I thought this is a really fun and energetic recording. It's a debut, all original music, a lot of interesting rhythmic things going on, interesting compositions from the opening Pangea, and a cool Bangkok with uh, Orientalism and blues uh, mixed into it. Uh, some slower, more tender moments with the uh, Rian Corinto. Great piano playing, intense, and also a nice light touch in places from Royo. Fortress bass is prominent and unique in sound and phrasing. And Delval matches the mood from whispery to full assault mode. And so I thought this is another exciting <laughs> and fabulous piano trio debut recording. Yeah, I, th I think you like this a lot more than I did, although I did like it a lot, I want to say. But you, you talked it up so much through the week. I was like, oh, gung-ho to hear it. And I was like, mm. yeah, it's good. But I don't know. I thought I was really impressed by the ideas on it. It just, it just seems to have like a lot of ideas like in each mm. in each track. It was lively and energetic. Uh, we get a piano trio, and then we get sounds created by a piano trio. But then they go way beyond the sound we expect when we think of. Yeah. Piano trio, right? You hear bowed bass effects. You hear African and Latin percussion effects, straight drums, lush classical type piano lines, and intermingled with the jazzier ones. You get swing. You get something that's more kind of angular and kind of bouncy. It's, it's an album with a lot of variety, I thought. 
and um, it crosses uh, genres several times within single tracks, and I really did enjoy that. I think it's something that's going to repay repeated listenings, because I think there's a lot going on. I was kind of a little bit overwhelmed by <laughs> just what I was hearing. It wasn't what I expected, in other mm. words. So I, I think part of it I was reading into, like, oh, Russ likes it, so it's going to be this, but it's not, you know? So it's, um, yeah, I, I think I got to just sort of um, rehear it and kind oh, of get yeah. more of the, um, get more absorbed in sort of the, uh, the unexpected uh, elements in it. There's a lot of unexpected uh, sounds on the album. Yeah. I think uh, I should give it a listen and um, check that out. Just be ready for anything. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, things to unpack here. But overall, it's right. just got this great bursting energy to it, which I thought uh, this good impressed energy. me a lot. Yeah, so. yeah. You never knew what you were going to hear next, really. It was kinda, yeah. That was kind of cool on a jazz album, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, usually when you get kind of a debut like this, you're going to have a lot of standards or their favorite tunes. And this just sort of really slams you with all this original like really complex stuff and uh, it's well played and what i like about this the same thing uh, that initially struck me when we heard spiral trio last year is the right. real active and equal importance of the bass as a yes. you know lead instrument not just a, a support for the piano uh, so fortia right. here is very aggressive interesting and has a lot of palette of uh, unique things that he can do so yeah, and I think that uh, that the, the highlighting of the bass is going to be like a common theme with all three of these uh, jazz albums yeah. this week. The, the bass really is prominent in all three of these. Yeah. And yeah. so the next recording is uh, also a piano-led recording by a pianist, Dan Costa. It's on a symphonic distribution label. It's called Beams. And I've heard Costa's name, and I haven't really checked out his music too much, but I thought I really should going on the weight of the guests on this recording. <laughs> There's yeah. some really big names here. And uh, so Costa was born in London in 1989 to an Italian and Portuguese family. He studied classical piano in France, and he wrote his first composition at the age of 12. And his Latin roots, along with his passion for jazz, uh, led him to study at the Escola Superior de Musica y Artes do Espectáculo in Portugal where he also got a grant to study Brazilian music in Sao Paulo. And so he's going to show his mastery of those South American Brazilian rhythms on this recording. Yeah. Uh, here he is with all of his original compositions, arrangements, and the production of this recording. And the guests I alluded to, John Patitucci, the great one on acoustic bass. Yeah. On drums, we've got Paulinho, Vicente, trumpet Dave Douglas, a big name in jazz world, alto sax Teco Cardoso, appearing on electric guitar, Mike Stern, mm. who will dominate the, the uh, ears on that section with his tone, soprano sax, the great Dave Liebman on one tune, percussion, and something very interesting, Hermeto Pascual. And uh, we've also got a vocalist adding some vocalizations on the recording, and Boccato. So let's uh, start out with the title track, Beams. Uh, and it starts out with some soft, dreamy rubato exchanges of piano chords and figures uh, from Costa and Patitucci's acoustic bass. Costa gets some more momentum going into a flowing tempo with the bass and Vicente's cymbal textures. And then Vicente adds some more clicky groove and a left-hand piano and bass line leads into a trumpet melody from Dave Douglas with some improvisations as well. It has a light 8-beat Latin feel to it. 
Costa comes up after the trumpet melody for a 16-measure solo. It's got smooth runs, rhythmic chords, keeping the uplifting mood of the tune. Patatucci gets an equal-measured 16-bar uh, solo himself. And you always know his sound, that very mm. clear attack, ringing tone, and those little bends of pitch he can do. Yeah, big, thick grip. sound, too. Yeah, yeah. It's great. He makes it rhythmic yeah. and interesting uh, with descending lines. Costa continues on with the more free-flowing piano melody we heard at the beginning and a return of Douglas and the trumpet melody from before into some repeats of the final chords to a soft ending. Track two, Acalantando. It's a rubato piano intro from Costa with long pauses here. It picks up a soft bossa-like tempo from Vicente's brushes and Patatucci's bass, but takes another pause with rubato piano before the entrance of Teco Cardoso with the melody on alto. It's soft and flowing. Costa doubles with him on the second section of the melody and then has answering left-hand lines into some chords and ringing notes The transition to a piano solo. His phrasing is relaxed and delicate, with Patatucci giving nice push and little fills below him. And Cardoso returns for a solo on alto and keeps it light with nice space between the phrases. Cardoso and Costa join together for a final melody strain, and it rings out softly to the end. Track three is Encaminho. This is a trio tune, just piano, bass, and drums. Uh, Patatucci gets it started out with 16 bars of some intensely rhythmic bass improvisations, with Costa wrapping chords around his phrases, and then gets started on the forward-pushing syncopated melody. Seems to be an A-A-B-A construction, but the A section is like 29 bars long, and the B is 16 with syncopated descending ideas and different right-hand figures. Uh, at times, it picks up a real samba-type push, but then flows more freely in spots and has a lot of neat rhythmic piano riffs in it. When Costa starts his solo in the tune, it gets more of a samba press with Patatucci's throbbing bass feel. He keeps his phrases smooth, uh, even when building up rhythmic tension and has some nice ringing high register runs, ending with pretty cascading figures. Patatucci has a solo working in the upper register, but still sounding incredibly full with exact attacks and busy lines. Then Costa comes back with another run through the A, B, and then A sections with some soft rhythmic chords and a few final ringing notes to end it. Track four is called Sparks of Motion. The widespreading chorus tone of Mike Stern <laughs> envelops you from the start with this uh, <laughs> rubato solo guitar intro here with echoing reverb uh, to his lines. Stern sits out for the melody of the tune and Costa and the trio take over. It's got a Brazilian style flowing even beat, AAB form with more halting piano phrases on the A section and more forward movement. Uh, in the nine measure length B section uh, before Stern returns for a solo. Fluid lines with that rich tone, some cool bends, and ends with this really nice soft descending line. The Patatucci follows that with a bass solo. It's a really good one, both rhythmically and melodically, with teasing pauses along the way. And then Stern returns, and this time he takes a run through the melody that we heard on piano the first time, and now on guitar, and he continues with some extended lines over Costa's chords for a soft ending. Track five is called Cypress. It's an interesting four-bar intro with syncopated push and then pauses with added piano. The melody is rhythmic, 
and very syncopated piano phrases pushing and then pulling back kind of like a swaying tree uh, i don't know if it was like a visualization of the cypress it nice. seems to be a 32 measured total length uh, and then we hear part of the beginning again before the rhythmic feel becomes uh, more even and Costa and Patitucci exchange short solo sections. Costa playing some very fleet and weightless high register figures with a nice touch. There's one more restart to the melody and then they vamp on the syncopated rhythmic chords for Vicente to do some drum solo filling to the end. Track six is called Entao. Here Vicente gets it started with some brushes going on the skins and uh, Costa adds cute sparse figures that build to the entrance of Anne Pocato with breezy vocalizations on the melody, along with Costa. They float in and out with rhythmic transitions between them by the trio. Uh, there's a lot of variety, and you wonder what is coming next as it stays in tempo, but the rhythmic force varies. Costa works into a piano solo with lots of rhythmic variety, light, delicate phrases, and more percussive chords. Vicente has a lot of light cymbal textures dancing around. Patitucci has a bass solo with a real intense push in the phrases. And then Boccato returns for more vocalization melodies. The tune suddenly stops, and then you're in for a big surprise. At first, I thought someone was drowning in the pool behind the studio. <laughs> this this no. was kind of an odd <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah, It's... Uh, Hermeto Pascual, the uh, additional percussionist on the album, and he's adding a new type of vocalization. I don't know, this is the real name for this. I called it uh, glass tumbler gurgling. <laughs> now, if you go to uh, Costa's YouTube channel, you can see it in the album trailer video. It's uh, unique for sure. And he uh, gets some real whooping phrases over uh, just light drums from Vicente and ends the tune with some final real bubbling <laughs> effects. Yeah, so. I think it's, it's, it reminded me a little bit of like the Beatles song Yellow Submarine with it, that ah uh, 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 oh, right, you know, because right. it's got that kind of bubbling sound in there. Yeah. Um, so um, I don't know if it's something uh, he usually does, uh, uh, but it's certainly uh, a interesting unique Interesting little uh, addition to this album. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the next track, Seven, is Viewscape. It's got a four-bar intro with Costa keeping a rhythmic repeating note in the right hand and sort of uh, diving left-hand figures in every other measure. Uh, the melody is moving chord phrases with connecting lines in the right hand of the piano. It's an A-A-B-A form with some extended spots like an 11-bar B section that builds up tension into the A again, uh, which we only hear one time before going uh, to the B once more. Uh, this time Costa extends it with rhythmic chiming notes into a bass solo from Patitucci in a muted upper register. And Costa comes out of that with some ideas of the B harmonies into more rounds of the melody sections and ends it with some rhythmic vamping with nice subtle interplay from Vicente. Track 8 is Paw Prints. And uh, Boccato's back uh, right from the start to vocalize the flowing melody line in sync with Costa's right hand, this cool bass and left-hand piano line before the final section of the melody. Pressing tempo dissolves, and there's some pretty piano trickles into a slower vocalization from Boccato with bowed bass from Patitucci. Costa gets a new rhythmic 6-8 feel going with repeated bass notes and chords mixing in right-hand improvisations. And then Patitucci adds longer bass notes and Boccato floats more vocalizations. It gets soft and dreamy to a stop, but Patitucci emerges with some bass fluttery figures that alternate with low ringing notes. And after a kind of pregnant pause, they re-enter with the original melody for a final run to the end. Then we're going to finish it up with a tune called Star Dial. 
And this one's a duet between Costa and David Liebman on soprano sax. Acosta starts it out with an intro of soft ringing repeated chords and sporadic bass notes. It gets some syncopated movements and harmonic changes picking up into Liebman's entrance for the melody that he works together with Costa in the middle register of the sax with very soft articulation. It gets free and lighter with higher piano notes and some high searching lines from Liebman and some more soft and sparse phrases. Costa rings dreamy phrases back into another run of the melody, and there's more soft rhythmic piano for some final sparse lines from Liebman before it ends. So it's a beamy and dreamy sounding recording. There's light and airy melodies, flowing Brazilian rhythms that come easy from the drums because the melody lines have so much motion in the syncopation in Costa's phrasing. Uh, the music flows and never seems forced. Costa's piano shows rhythmic drive, but also delicate touch on smooth solo lines. And Patitucci's bass is excellent, as always, with engaging solos. The trio's the basis of the songs here, but we get the guest spots from Douglas on trumpet, Cardoso on sax, and Liebman on soprano, all these horns for some tonal variety, and then Stern's enveloping guitar tone and technique, and the wispy vocals from Boccato. Oh, and don't forget the water gurgling. On the the water gurgling, too. It was harder than usual to make myself analyze what I was listening to, uh, even though there are some unusual phrase lengths and, you know, rather than repeating the form, it, the things get broken up because I just wanted to sort of sit back and take the, that kind of sound bath with the breezy mood of the recording. Mm. I think it's that kind of album to listen to. You can admire the musicianship in the flowing phrases and solo lines, but it, it invites a relaxed uh, type of uh, listening just because of these kind of breezy South American rhythms to it. Yeah, I sort of know what you mean. Um, I, there's a kind of amorphous quality to the uh, to mm. each individual track that it was kind of just hard to say. Oh, this is what this is doing. You know, yeah. it's it was sort of uh, odd like that. Yeah, I felt like I was trying to put something in a box when I'm talking yeah. about it. It was a little uncomfortable. It was like yeah. it was like shifting out of my uh, kind of you know coming off the fork every time I stuck it in. Yeah. Yeah, nevertheless, it was really a really appealing album. Mm. I, I had read somewhere that the title Beams had to do with like types of light. Yeah. And I think that's what he's doing. And I was thinking, you think of light as a, I've been in this before, light is a particle, light is a wave. I would say that on this album, light is definitely a wave. It's kind of more yeah. amorphous. It's not this exact thing occupying space. And um, I thought the, because the album comes across as like laid back and mellow. It's, uh, I think, you said the words I use were tranquil hmm. and ideal late night listening. It, tend, it does tend to be kind of a relaxing album. It's got like kind of a Latin quality to it, but I would hardly call it a Latin jazz album. It's sort of Latin, the Latinness is suggested, I feel like, by the tracks. I thought it was um, abstract, this album. I was having trouble hmm. summarizing what I was hearing, like you said. Yeah. Um, it was intriguing, and I found myself wanting to piece together what was happening in each relatively short track. They're all like four to five minutes long. This especially hit home on the odd vocal break on track six, <laughs> where you hear the, 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 yeah, vocal, the, the water yeah. sounds, right? Well, I didn't know it was a water sound at the time. I called it a uh, distorted uh, percussive <laughs> sound, a vocal mm. percussive vocal sound with the drums playing a muted rhythm on the snare. But I, I rather liked it. I was kind of like looking for it on um, Amazon. It turns out it's only on a, a streaming. But um, And I liked the cover art too. It was rather colorful mm. with um, light shining through the trees and these colorful yeah. sort of figures on it. So yeah, I, it's uh, a really interesting listen. I would recommend it. Give yeah. it a listen and um, see what you make of it. 
because I'm still yeah. working on it. <laughs> Check it out. Yeah, I liked it though. In the final recording, uh, this was uh, something that really intrigued me here because it's a project on a jazz label that we really like, Positone Records. Yeah. And I really liked the instrumentation lineup. And it turns out it's a really cool recording. And this is by the group of Positone players going by the name Something Blue. And this is a new recording, Personal Preference, just came out on January 6th. And uh, the horn lineup intrigued me with two saxes and trombone and a lot of names that we know from the Positone label. This is a project of the Positone producer, uh, Mark Free. And this is what he says, uh, with the Something Blue series of releases, my goal is to present a series of focused and concise performances to create maximum enjoyment. Uh, for this 2023 release, I specifically focused on assembling a group of talented composers. I selected some familiar collaborators, bassist Boris Kozlov, alto saxophonist Marcus Howell, and drummer Donald Edwards. Also chose some new faces as well, tenor saxophonist Willie Morris, trombonist Alton Sinekalar, and pianist Misha Tsiganov. I hope this program of new compositions will encourage a wider audience of listeners to increase their engagement with jazz so it becomes their personal preference for musical entertainment. So this is a, you know Free's idea to get these musicians together. And I think it's uh, yeah, a really cool idea. Uh, a lot of these names uh, we've heard a lot, especially uh, Boris Kozlov, the uh, the busiest uh, bassist that we know of. Yeah, and, on our uh, podcast, anyway. On our podcast, yeah. <laughs> Second only to Ron Carter. Actually, we've called him the Russian Ron Carter a few times. Right, yeah, because he's on every uh, album. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, uh, we've got uh, this group here. I'll go through them again. Marcus Howell on alto saxophone and soprano saxophone on three tracks. Willie Morris, tenor sax. Alton Sinkalar on trombone. Misha Tsiganov, who we heard a recording from last year on the podcast, a Russian-born pianist, uh, Boris Kozlov on bass, and Donald Edwards on drums. Uh, Mark Fries, the producer, and Nick O'Toole is the engineer. And we've got a program of mostly compositions by these musicians, starting off with the real burner that uh, when I heard this, I knew I wanted to hear the rest of the album, because yeah. uh, this one really zings. It's called The Path, and it's by uh, Marcus Howell. So we get off to a smoking start on this tune. The horns pick up into a fast tempo, swinging super hard on a great horn arrangement of the minor melody. Howell's alto has a real searing tone. If you can think of, you know, going all the way back to like Cannonball Adderley's kind of uh, tone uh, when he had that real edge on it, it takes that kind of uh, quality. And Morse's tenor and Sinclair's trombone have really cool moving lines under the lead alto sound. There's a 16-bar melody section that repeats, uh, but the end section is different on the second time. And then there's a four-bar transition into a different 16-bar segment with a pickup into a smoking alto solo from Howell, uh, swinging hard with cutting-edge tone. Uh, he does multiple choruses over the original form, finishing up on the different section where the rhythmic feel changes up in Edward's drums and Kozlov's bass uh, from the fast walking uh, to pairs of notes. That breaks into a trombone solo uh, from Sinclair. He has cool rhythmic play and nice slide agility with bluesy hints in his phrases, uh, taking it out in the harmonies uh, for a bit over the ending section. Then Siganoff is up 
for a busy and bouncy piano solo and he builds up some good harmonic tension before and working through the contrasting section at the end and then continuing to finish his thoughts when the horns bring back the melody section for a final exciting run. So we're up to a really intense start. Track two is a tune by Willie Morris, the tenor sax player called Flyover Country. This one's a waltz ballad. Siganoff provides some pretty ringing chords and a few high notes over interesting light drumming from Edwards in the eight-bar intro. The horns have a warm, soft, flowing melody line, nicely harmonized in the first 16 bars. Uh, the next section, also 16 bars, has swelling horn phrases with a joyful trombone outburst <laughs> along the way. Uh, there's an eight-bar transition of bass and left-hand piano figures into another 16-bar melody section with a little more animation and horn line movement. Then Morris is up for a tenor sax solo. He uh, blows out a lot of soft double-time figures that snap nicely with the rhythm, and Edwards providing nice cymbal work behind him. And Siganoff follows that with a lot of pretty chiming chord ideas. We hear the eight-bar bass transition section again into the more animated melody line to finish it up. And we're going to get a tune by the trombonist Alton Sankalar, Blended, for track three. This one starts with an agile horn pickup to an exciting Latin beat into a 16-bar syncopated theme with a very thick horn arrangement. Uh, they repeat it with the pickup, which you realize then has two extra beats making it hmm. uh, a very tricky kind of phrase. There's an eight-bar transition section that switches up to swing, has nice trading between the saxes and trombone, and the last measures are the uh, original pickup phrase with those extra beats. They go through the original 16-bar melody line with a break at the end into a solo from Sankalar. They get some fun, really low blasts at the beginning and end of this trombone solo. A Lots of tricky slide work and good rhythmic phrasing. Nice playing as they uh, include the swing sections in the solo patterns. Uh, there's a cool eight-bar transition section with uh, Latin ostinato bass patterns and building horn figures into an intense alto solo from Howell. And here they keep it swinging underneath. Howell has a lot of nice melodic ideas and a really cool cry in, along the way. There's another bass ostinato transition with some drum fills uh, that brings it back to the horn pickup line for a final run through the melody sections to a cool final chord. Now we're going to get a Tsiganoff composition, Seely Street Song. But this one I had to listen to a couple times to figure <laughs> out what was going on. Um, yeah. It's a softer medium tempo tune in a 5-8 meter at least to begin. Tsiganoff plays a pretty eight-measure intro over nice drum ideas from Edwards. The horns have swelling melody lines uh, for the first eight bars. Then the tune switches to six-eight for four measures uh, with different kinds of horn lines, and then back to a similar swelling horn line in the five-eight meter like we heard in the first section, but this phrase is only seven measures long. <laughs> this is quite an unusual structure, yeah. uh, switching between phrase length and meters. Well, Tsikhanov takes a solo over the exact same pattern they use for the solo as the melody uh, twice. He goes around it, clear articulation, animated right hand lines, uh, keeping punchy rhythms in contrast with his left hand. The horns return for the melody for a final run through uh, repeating the final four measures, figures uh, a few times, and then extending the 5-4 pattern for a few improvised thoughts from the horns. 
Yeah, no, I didn't actually try to count out the uh, the beats in this, but it did stand out because of yeah. all those odd changes. Like yeah. you kind of tell, I sense that there's something odd about it. It's even like, well, if you don't try to figure it out, you'll yeah. you'll be out of your swaying motion uh, right. on the sofa or hammock or wherever you are. <laughs> Track five is also a Tsiganov composition, Yasha. A drum pickup into a fast tempo intro with alternating piano chords and bass notes, some drum fills for 16 bars. Uh, there's a really swinging 16-bar horn theme over syncopated bass for the first half, and then walking bass that adds more forward motion for the second half of that section. Uh, they repeat it, and then go into a contrasting 16-bar Latin beat section. They go back to the original section, but it's shorter at only 14 measures, and the piano introduction from the beginning of the tune returns for uh, 12 bars uh, with the four-bar break at the end that's the start of the solo for Howl. Another construction to keep <laughs> your ears on your toes <laughs> from Tsiganov. Hmm. Um, Howl swings really hard on this solo, and then Senkalar takes over on the Latin section into a round of swing on the trombone. Morse falls on tenor for a couple rounds on the swing sections, and Siganov takes the Latin section into more swinging sections for his own solo. The horns get new composed and arranged lines into eight-bar exchanges of soloing by Edwards, uh, who then gets some more extended time to play. Uh, they go around the melody sections once more with a few repeats of the final phrase and some drum fills to finish it off. Track 6, a composition by Willie Morris called Grit. Uh, an intro with ringing bass notes from Kozlov and chiming chords from Tsiganov. The horns get started on a fast swinging line, but on the 6th and 7th bar, there's a big change-up, and then suddenly mm. a loping ostinato bass from Kozlov at a new tempo emerges. Uh, only Howell hangs on with a soft alto tone and then continues into a solo over the groove, soloing freely and intensely. Kozlov and Edwards transform the hypnotic groove into a fast double-time swing, and Howell continues on with speedy lines. There's some transitioning horn lines into a return of the loping bass for Morris to start a tenor solo. He works up from repeated ideas to more agitated uh, other thoughts on his lines. Kozlov hints at the encroaching double-time shift that's going to come, and then he gets into it, and Morris matches that with fast snaking lines blowing hard down on the lower register. The rhythm section interaction is very intense underneath here. It ends up with a final horn line into a surprising, happy-sounding major chord after all the minor modal mayhem we've been through. Uh, it was a very fun vehicle for some intense sax soloing. Track 7 is a Kozlov original, Palanga, and it's got these little apostrophes in it. I don't know what that means. I, I thought Palanga mm. is like a resort town in Lithuania, I think. I don't know if this is supposed Maybe to be we'll that Maybe we'll hear from them and they'll let yeah, us know. Be, that that nice. often happens. Yeah. So, yeah. It starts with three long-held notes in the horns with busy drum and piano ideas and bowed bass underneath that makes the intro. Uh, then Edward's kind of whips up a beat on the drums into swinging horn melody lines. How a soprano stands out here on this track, as well as the low syncopated trombone lines on the long 40 measure length melody. Uh, Morris is up first for a tenor solo and Howell falls on soprano. There's a tricky syncopated horn line transition section with more cool low trombone lines and then into a trombone solo from Senkalar. And the feel shifts to more Latin with snappy bass figures from Kozlov underneath. There's another short horn transition back into swinging for an energetic solo from Tsiganov. And uh, the horns stay on for backing into a final melody run to end up the tune. And we've got track eight, another Edwards tune. 
I don't know how to say this. It's like Nisi. Man. Spelled like Nisi. Nisi. Yeah, yeah. Nisi. Um, yeah. Anyway, bass whole notes plot along under a more busy beat from Edwards, and the trombone then joins those bass notes. Suddenly, the saxes come in, and the trombone joins them for a swinging 12-bar melody over fast-walking bass. It ends with Kozlov soloing alone over Edwards' light drumming. Kozlov has all kinds of things going on with fast lines, intense rhythms. Uh, the horns join in on soft, harmonized backing lines into an alto solo from Howell. He blows relaxed here, connecting lines of more spaced-out phrases. Uh, Tsiganov is next, starts out with more disjointed figures and oddly-placed notes uh, in the sort of rhythmic space that's there. Then he gets more of a groove in his lines, but breaks it up again. Uh, the horns come in for backing into a final run of the 12-bar melody. Track 9, another Sinclair tune, Here to Stay. This one's got a Latin beat 12-bar intro with syncopated bass and piano chords and these two-bar rising horn phrases. The first eight-bar section of the melody is swing, keeping that rising phrase idea from the intro. Then it goes to eight measures of Latin and repeats the AB pattern. Uh, the horn arrangement is really good, uh, making the most of the three voices of the horns. Senkalar comes out of that with a trombone solo, lots of jolly melodic riffs and fast slide work. He navigates the switch-ups from mostly swing to the Latin beat sections. And Morris follows on a tenor solo. Then there's a new horn solo, like soli melody, uh, just over the drums that works back into another run through the melody. And Siganoff gets a solo next with some exciting rhythmic and harmonic ideas. And the horns rejoin on the Latin B section of the melody and repeat it into a slowed down ending line with some final sliding from Senkalar. Track 10 is another Siganoff original, Waltz for Olena. It's a 16-bar intro of pushing and ascending chord patterns and then three softer bars to transition into the melody taken by Howell on soprano sax here for the first 16 bars. Uh, the other horns join in for backing lines and more arranged sections of melody. Howell gets a soprano solo after that, often staying in the warmer lower register and blowing gently. The Sinclair follows with a very fluffy toned trombone solo. And then Howell blows some more simple melody lines and the horns build up around him as Tsiganov adds some nice trickling piano phrases below. Kozlov has some very snappy bass lines at the ends of phrases underneath in this section. The horns continue to the end with a few final holds for Howell to add some final improvisations over. It's a gentle flowing waltz tune. Track 11. This is uh, not by one of the... Uh, players here, but another pianist on Positon, David Ake, and it's called You May Have Already Won. <laughs> Sounds like one of those uh, uh, commercials, right? Uh, Edwards yeah. gets a fun drum beat going into a 14-measure calypso melody from the horns, uh, just over the bass and drums, that has two extra beats in the eighth bar. Every time I listened to it, it would throw me off. I had to figure out what it was. Uh, it's a weird phrase mm. length with those extra beats. Tsiganov joins in lightly under the happy trombone solo of Senkalar, and it's basically following over uh, rhythm changes. You know, I got rhythm, but with the calypso beat for the harmonic pattern. Uh, the rhythm stops for a bit for Morris uh, to get started on a double time solo, and then the band joins him again at the new fast tempo. There's another complete pause, and Howell is up on alto, and he takes it back to the original tempo. 
And then Siganov follows that and it goes back to the double time feel. And after that, Kozlov follows with a really fun bass solo of speedy and snappy licks. And finally, the horns return with another run through the melody, this time faster than we originally heard it. So kind of a fun uh, mixture of elements here. And we're going to end up with uh, an older song, uh, not by any of these musicians, but by a well-known jazz bassist, Ben Tucker. And what better way to end a recording than with a funky minor blues uh, in the old sort of uh, post-bop or hard-bop kind of tradition, Coming Home Baby. There's a 12-bar intro with Kozlov taking the first four bars to set the funky mood on bass. Then piano and drums join in, getting the groove going. The horns take the short, sassy-phrased melody in unison and then split into harmony on the long notes in the ninth bar. They go around twice for good measure, and Morse is up first on tenor with some Joe Henderson-like sounding licks, cool clipped rhythmic phrases, and double-time lines. Howells up next with tart bluesy phrases on alto. The Sinclair follows, getting some tricky slide work uh, after some cool bluesy phrases on trombone. Back to Howell for a chorus, another from Sinclair, and then the two continue on in trade fours, uh, going around a time with some tricky articulated licks exchanged. Tsiganov gets some solo action too, starting out with uh, relaxed ideas, working up to more speedy and extended lines. And they take it around the melody a couple more times with a final phrase repeats and a slowdown with some final flurries on trombone from Sinclair. So, 12 tracks, you got an hour's worth of music here from some well-known positone players highlighting their original compositions. Uh, Mark Free has a really good thing going with this concept, I think. Uh, they've got a previous recording. I don't know if I mentioned it at the beginning, but uh, a few different players, not all the same. 2019, it was called Maximum Enjoyment, uh, <laughs> also by Something Blue. Uh, you know, so a little inner label project for Positone going on here. Well, the tunes are varied, interesting, have some unusual structures and twists to sink your ears into. They're well arranged with these horn lines making the best of the horn lineup. I especially enjoyed Howell's searing alto tone, taking charge of these melodies. And on the other end, the low bone tone of Sinclair filling out the sounds there. Uh, most of all, the intense solos are excellent with a nice assortment of approaches and personalities. It was good to hear more from Tsiganov. He's a very unique and exciting pianist. And he always great. Kozlov does some great work and locks it in with uh, Edwards nicely. So let's hear more of this kind of project in the future from one of our favorite labels, Positone. Yeah, this album came as a, it was it was the only upbeat album we heard this week. We were kind of more like sort of down tempo <laughs> or, or <laughs> moody for the, for the for most of the other albums this week. And this one was uh, just lifted me out of that. It came as a ray of sunshine for me that I really needed after those <laughs> other five albums, which I really enjoyed. But, yeah. you know, and now in this case, uh, Sinclair, the trombone player, I, I enjoyed his playing the most. I actually singled him out. First of all, because... I guess it, you know this, the saxophones were great on this, and they were, mm. were a great foil for him. But I really liked his um, phrasing and shaping of tones. He was very expressive in the way he kind of like played his tones. He kind of molded his kind of tone, and it just kind of drew me in mm. uh, on each note. Uh, I felt that he managed to get a lot of expression into his solos. You know, All as right. did the saxes, but they were lighter and a good foil. 
And they brought their uh, solos to these breezy heights that just made me feel good. Right. Yeah, I'm got a bit wilder in the middle, especially on the track Grit, which really yeah. stood out for me. There's not much of a tune there. It's just a solo yeah. vehicle, really. Yeah. And it's pretty wild soloing with some interesting ideas in it, too. I also enjoyed the very last tracks, High Spirits, Coming Home Baby. It just made me feel good. Mm. It was a good way to... And the, this album begins and ends really spectacularly with this really, yeah, those two tunes, <laughs> really yeah. upbeat feel. Yeah. Good uh, and the interaction between the sax and trombone and Coming Home Baby was fantastic, too. So, yeah, this I think that, that just this um, this particular album, just because of how different it was from the other ones really kind of pulled me in. I really needed this this week. It just felt great. Yeah. We almost always enjoy what we hear come out of Positone. And, yeah, uh, They true. put out a lot of records. And uh, so, you know, always uh, looking forward to hear what's coming out. I've got some other ones coming out soon on my list. So hopefully yeah. by the springtime, we hear some more of our favorite players and uh, hear some new musicians. And I'm going to keep my uh, eyes open for something from Sinclair, because as you said, I was you know, pretty excited by his trombone playing here yeah, as well. Me too. So, like to hear some uh, more of his uh, Latin type jazz compositions. Uh, that was kind of unique. Yeah, by the way, this one's on a CD too. I'm happy to see. Yeah. 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 Positone are reasonably Good priced and easy to get. Yeah. So, I uh, commend them for that as well. Also, a nice retro uh, album cover here with the blue tinted. Uh, saxophone with the hand yeah. i thought that was yeah. kind of cool yeah pretty cool although i i feel like it might slip through the cracks just because you know rather than having anyone's name on it it's just got this something blue <laughs> it's right. kind of nondescript if you don't know what it is you might just uh you know pass well, over not, it, not if we can help it that's what we're we here for it. that's why we're here. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> all right well there you have it that's episode 98 as we inch closer to 100 and well next week we've got our themes already set up we're going to have some cello in the classical programming yeah. we're going to have some vibes in the jazz and we already know for a hundredth episode uh, we're going to go with fanfares of trumpets yeah lots of trumpets weeks. in that one so yeah, yeah things are lining up looking forward to that before we uh, finish everything up here, thanks as always to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. And as I mentioned at the beginning, be sure to check out those other music podcasts. The trailers promotion will follow uh, when we sign off here. Uh, so do hang on and listen. If they sound interesting, uh, follow those links at the bottom of the podcast and well for next week's cello and vibes if you want to know what those recordings are shortly after this episode gets published i'll have the playlist up on deezer and also a link to it on our facebook page so if you want to get started listening and find out what those recordings are you can uh, do that after you listen to this podcast any other final thoughts there mike i'm just ready for next week ready to get into the uh all right Cello yeah, vibes. Vibing with the cello. Vibing with the cello. Cello and vibes. Maybe we can call it cello yeah, vibes. We could do that. Week. That'd be good. Yeah. Well, we'll look forward to that and then some celebrating for our two year anniversary 100th episode coming up in a couple weeks. We're going to share our happiness with lots of good new recordings with you all. So uh, please stick around for lots of good things coming up and we'll see you again 
next week for episode 99. Gerald Albright, Rhea Schneider, Charlie Hunter, Duke Robillard, Sean Jones, Walter Beasley, Steve Swallow. Something Came From Baltimore is a jazz, blues, and R&B podcast and radio show, and it's not really about Baltimore. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist that something came from Baltimore and be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe Domino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.